still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends And you are our friends Well, most of you at least I know a few of you weasels slip through every once in a while But we'll weed you out Anyway this is Jim Cornette's drive-thru, and I, obviously, am not the great Brian Last. I am Jim Cornette. Usually, the great Brian Last is speaking these words, but in this case, for the first time in seven years, due to a family emergency, and, and don't have a panic or start anything, the, the kids, the wife, and Last Manor are fine, but Brian's had to go out of town. He's on the road. He's away from equipment that would allow him to record and his time is being occupied in other directions. We don't even know whether this is going to work or not, and it may not sound the same as it normally does, but we're going to try as best we can to muddle through a program here for you today. So, the victim today, playing the part of the great Brian Last, on Jim Cornette's drive-thru, ladies and gentlemen, let me give a big introduction to an Arcadian vanguard mainstay and minion, one of the many people, the many cogs in this big wheel, ladies and gentlemen, the man with the incomparable name, Lou Kippelman. Hello, Lou Kippelman. Wait, I'm real? Some people a, think that I'm a, a fictitious member of the Jim Cornette uh, Arcadian Vanguard uh, Extended Universe here. No, no, no. See, that's where people are so wrong. All of you people are real. That's the problem. All of you people are real that we discuss here on the various programs. But mm. Lou, I want to thank you for stepping in today because as, you know, when people are in the lurch, well, then here comes a guy like you who looks like lurch. <laughs> to straighten things out. Yes. Uh, but uh, some of the folks have heard your name that listen to the program, but what? tell the people, the people, the cult of Cornette, what parts you play in the, in the giant machine that is the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network and the Jim Cornette programs. Yes. First of all, I wish I was only as handsome as uh, Tick Cassidy. But uh, <laughs> I, for almost the past four years, I've been uh, officially the associate producer at uh, Arcadian Vanguard, which means I, uh, I've taken point on production, recording, post-production, editing, 
on various and sundry podcasts currently. That uh, portfolio includes Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry and Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam. And coming real soon, I'm going to be involved with the uh, the new and great crew at the Wrestling News. So that's uh, that's who I am in the in this uh, particular universe. And and you have actually had a a responsible career in real life away from this podcasting nonsense. Like my uncle Harold used to say, is is Jimmy ever going to get out of that wrestling and get a real job? <laughs> uh, you you also are one of these. Apparently, the people that are going to be the ruling class after the bots take over, and you're a, a, a web expert developer, you know all that, all the coding and stuff. So you're going to be mm. part of the Invisible Empire. Well, yeah, I'm hoping. I've been a, a little bit off the radar in the tech world, but I, I, I was that was my day job for close to two decades. So. Self-taught. Unfortunately, uh, Coke Canopy wasn't around then. So. Well, and and but now somebody's going to have to lead the the forces after, and especially when you know when the Interstellar Council hears that we're a danger to the galaxy, somebody's going to have to represent us. Yeah, I well, I, I think it might <laughs> be a great. I'm I'll be heading up the mess hall. Uh, but you've been a wrestling fan for longer than you've done any of this stuff, probably, uh, deep down. How'd you get interested in wrestling? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Since I was the tender age of 12 would have been about the summer of 1984. Uh, I was, I was about to say you didn't, I don't know how tender you are actually. I didn't know your age. So you're, you're, you're younger than me. Well, son of well, a bitch. So well, is everybody else these yeah. days, I guess. Yeah, uh, let's just say I have a, at least a couple of prime uh, layers of marbling to preserve my <laughs> tenderness. Uh, so, yeah, back when I was a veal, uh, a young veal, I was flipping through the channels, and all of a sudden I, I came across on a multi-ethnic uh, station in San Francisco. Usually it was Chinese or Japanese. But at this particular time, it was AWA All-Star Wrestling. And what made me uh, stick around and watch it was uh, a, a big, vicious behemoth named uh, King Kong Brody. Uh, you know, more commonly known as Bruiser Brody. But he... Uh, he Except in, in Indiana and parts of the Midwest when Dick the Bruiser wouldn't let him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, and so so he, Brody hooked you. He did. He ran in and uh, put a whooping on the high flyers, broke Greg Gagne's leg, and uh, kicked Jim Brunzel in the tender nether regions and put him out for a while. And and yeah. that was just because they owed him trance. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, he's a dude that hooked me. Not long after that was the. Um, uh, the famous uh, Jerry Blackwell babyface turn at the Battle Royal in St. Paul. So they showed that on TV, and that was King Kong Brody putting a hellacious beating on him, too. So, yeah, that hooked me. Not long after that, um, I came across the WWF, but it really, everything kicked into full high gear in early 86 uh, when Worldwide Wrestling uh, started airing in San Francisco. So uh, that was what I was first exposed to. 
a young whippersnapper named uh, James E. Cornett. Well, I'm I'm glad and happy that I could expose myself to you at that tender age. Well, you know, in San Francisco, that's a fairly common occurrence. <laughs> <laughs> but we shall not speak of that. Uh, you've been down to Market Street lately. But anyway, uh, so we're going to do this program today. And, and again, we wish uh, Brian all the best with his issues. And we will try to provide an update on the experience, which is uh, scheduled to be out in a few days in this in this universe. I'm still in a time warp. We've had... I've had issues here at the castle this week with people coming in and out all over the place doing various things, all of them requested and or productive. I don't mean that people were just coming in willy-nilly and picking shit up, but I've I've had a hectic week. I want to make mention also, so again, our best wishes to Brian and also Charlie from Starkville, Mississippi, the real star of this program. Might not get a question today, but he is going to get a shout out because his dad, Donnie, just had hip surgery and is trying to uh, battle through his recovery there. And we wanted to send him a get well and a shout out and all the all the phrases that the young kids say uh, and feel better soon, Donnie, and and make sure that uh, Charlie has time to send us 18 more questions. And also, Bobby Fulton, a lot of people have heard Bobby Fulton was in the hospital um, over the weekend. As of the time we are recording is when he was hoping to get released. So I don't know that that's been followed through with, but he was hoping that he'd be out today. But it was uh, double pneumonia and sepsis or blood poisoning or what? I, well, I guess the same thing, but what I didn't actually know at first I was thinking septic. What's he doing in the septic tank? <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I talked to Bobby and they had him on all kinds of medicine. He was feeling better. And, uh, uh then the, that was a couple of days ago and he should be out as we speak, hopefully. So Bobby get well soon also. Yeah, and uh, put that Framunda cheese cash elsewhere, not under the septic tank. Oh, jeez. I tell you. You know, I have watched the people that come to clean out my septic tank every couple of years. That's about the time you, you do it. And I, every time I say to myself, how did, was there nothing else available? Was there nothing else available? How much do they get paid to drive a truck up, bring that big hose out, a big suction hose, and stick it in a hole in the ground, and have to sit there and, and smell that? It's not. It can't be for the love of the game. The people that <laughs> engage in that occupation, and and I, they don't look highly paid. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, was there no choice of turning to crime first? <laughs> it's just. Right. You know, that's when law enforcement does too good of a job in local municipalities. I think uh, I've never seen a, a, a septic tank technician come to career day at school. It's just not one of those in-demand jobs. And I mean, you know, you have to have some type of cognitive function to be able to operate the the sucker thing and back the truck up. And th- I mean, you know, you're ambulatory, you're mobile, you're able to perform, you have opposable thumbs. Yeah. There's no, uh, nothing else. 
Right. You want to get up and do every day. All right. Let, you want to do a show here since we, we all we have to do is do a show. They I, I, I have shit. nothing better to do, Jim. So. All right. What are we going to talk about? For, now, okay, you play the part of Brian. So now, yeah, if this show sucks, Kippelman, uh, it's yeah. your fault. You play the part of Brian. What What do you want to talk about today, Lou? Oh, well, we could talk about what's uh, what's been burning up the wires uh, in terms of wrestling news in the past week. Uh, we've had uh, one higher-up departure from World Wrestling Entertainment and uh, a crossover, one one uh, person of note joining WWE, <laughs> like ships in the night. Uh, oh, gosh. So... Oh. All right. So, and of course, for the for the people who have been living under a rock, about three months ago, they announced Jeff Jarrett back in the WWE. We never, I actually, the only reason that I knew he wasn't there is I accidentally, well, not accidentally, we did it on purpose, but I threw <laughs> nothing related to the WWE or anything of that nature. I spoke to Jeff on the phone back at the, or in the early part of the year. January, February, whatever. And because a lot of people had, had remembered him being there and didn't know he had, had left before, like a year and a half ago or whatever. So three months ago, they announced he's back. He's the senior vice president of live events, which means he, to me, he would be in charge of the promotion of their live events and or, you know, the marketing of or whatever the fuck, or potentially even booking those lineups or whatever the case. He's an old-time promoter he learned from his father. That's one thing he's been able to do is put together live events. Okay, <laughs> sounds like a good deal to me. Three months later, he's out. What? And Road Dog's back. And, and, I, and I like both these guys. I've never said anything bad about either one of them, and I'm not here, but I'm just, what the, the just the, instability of what the fuck is going on because road dog was there until they fucking asked him to leave, I guess sometime back. And then he's of late been mentioning on Twitter and social media that hey Tony Khan, I could help you with your program. He's trying to, cause <laughs> obviously he didn't think there was any immediate imminent return to the WWE because he was doing that like two or three weeks ago. Yeah. So who is making these decisions? How far ahead of these decisions being made? And why does anybody want to take a fucking job with the WWE in that office when you last about as long as a goddamn stockbroker on Black Sunday? Yeah, no kidding. And then, um, so the news about uh, Road Dogs rehiring at WWE was broken first by our friend Mike Johnson at PW Insider. And he noted that Jeff Jarrett was the executive vice president of live events, and he's out the door. Coming in, Brian James, whose official title is vice president of live events. So, it, so he doesn't get to be an executive? No, evidently not. <laughs> what so, difference is it? What, is, what I, the uh, fuck are they doing? Uh, yeah. Oh! Welcome, Road oh! Dog. You're not in the C-suite, brother. Can I do Sam Kennison? Ah! <laughs> now, here, think about, the, think about this last, what, was it two years ago now? Mm -hmm. They decided, Vince decided, 
that Heyman and Bischoff would be the general managers or managing partners or whatever the terminology they used was Mm -hmm. for Raw and SmackDown. And that's going to lead to the ratings going through the roof because all the organization will be better and and love is in the air and sunshine, (laughs) lollipops, rainbows and waterfalls. And then Bischoff's, they kicked him out within, what, two months or whatever period of time. And he's like, oh, okay, and he'll go back home. And then Paul, they, obviously the thing about when Paul gets a job in the office up there, he he doesn't even have to move. He lives fucking 25 minutes from Stanford. But mm-hmm. Paul's out shortly thereafter, and Bruce who had come in to replace Bischoff, then is just in charge of both shows, which was basically just another way for Vince to say, I just need somebody that will say the same shit that I'll say, because I don't have time to say it to everybody. And (laughs) and then, but then they, again, Jeff was there, then he's gone. Then they bring him back in an executive level position. And three, and I mean, again, he didn't sell his house in Nashville and move up there full time. But there's an element of why the fuck do any of these people at their age, at various people's stage of Bruce has had two heart attacks that I know of. It was several years ago. He's talked about it. I'm not reading his medical chart out in public. Mm -hmm. He wants that fucking stress and pressure and the goddamn feds investigating the goddamn company and, all this turmoil and family battles. And here's a guy that's my age that's had a couple of heart attacks that is, has been like me noted most of his life for being a little on the portly side. And he wants to put up with this shit. And did, I don't know if he moved from Texas back up there, but you, if you're working in that office, you have to have at least an apartment or a condo minimum Mm-hmm. You know what that is, don't you? A condom minimum? That's birth control for midgets. But you've got to have... <laughs> you've got to have some place to fucking rest your weary bones for four hours a night when you work for that company up there. So they're getting places to live. They're moving their possessions up there and at least what you would need to live there part-time. They're rearranging their other lives and schedules. And then three months later, I'll see ya. Or it's the same right. thing they were doing to the developmental talent when they flew fucking or moved uh, poor Taya Valkyrie mm-hmm. down there uh, to Florida. And then, up, oh, nope, we changed our mind. Fuck you. And there, there should be, there ought to be, by God, there better be some type of minimum agreement in these job offers where if you have to engage in any fucking aggravation and upheaval in your life, we guarantee you, because we've asked you to do this, that unless you fuck up in some kind of way and end up naked and drunk out on East Main Street in Stamford against the light, you get a year or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, yeah, shop security, not a big uh, uh, big factor here. Well, yeah. It, and Titan Tower. When, when people ask me, well... You know, if they offered you a job, no, if they offered me a job, I still wouldn't take it because even if it's a job I wanted, which there's not currently one of those available, cause that would be none. <laughs> but if there was a job, I w- I'm not going to fucking, 
go to Stanford for six weeks and then somebody, you know, we changed our mind. Fuck, I'd be in prison after that. I would commit aggravated mayhem. <laughs> it's why are you, if you're 30 years old or maybe 40 years old and you still want to do something or go somewhere or move up the corporate ladder or have a career in some branch of wrestling, then that, okay, take a shot. Sure. But these fucking old guys like me, fuck you. Get goddamn hobbies. Feed the deer. <laughs> well, you know, <sighs> not, not everybody has the benefit of flora and fauna like you do on the castle grounds. Well, I've, I've been fawning over my flora, and I'll have you know that my, my floras are fawning over, back at me. Oh, well, uh, th that's the magic of nature, yeah. Um, but anyway, but yes, so there you go. So, and I also, I got to say, and I know a lot of this is Vince brought Jeff back. Well, here's the thing. This is a ring around the rosy type of thing. Vince always liked the Jarrett's. Jarrett and Road Dog, Road Dog Jesse James, Road Dog started out as Jeff Jarrett's roadie, double J, y'all. Mm-hmm. Road Dog ended up in DX, good friends with Triple H, and Triple H is now in the goddamn same position that Vince was in three months ago when he hired Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> but <laughs> apparently the only equation that's gone sideways in this is that Triple H don't like Jeff Jarrett as much as Vince McMahon did. So they didn't complete the, the circle jerk, I mean the chain of, the circle of trust there, I guess we should say. Sure. Well, you know, Jeff Jarrett now has a whole lot of free time. Seems to be in pretty good physical shape for 55 years old. Oh, he's, you know, that's, well, and, and honestly, I know Jeff Jarrett, he has no free time now. He's just going to go back and do something else he was doing. He's got, and has had for the past couple of years, a, an interest, a ownership interest in a minor league ball team. He's been oh, doing right. promotions with them. Springfield, Illinois. Yeah. He had called me about a completely unrelated project that, uh, and again, not goddamn spreading any rumors, not even, not a wrestling promotion either, and not a job for me or anything like that. Just talking about a project that he was doing that I might be able to help him publicize. And that, so, but anyway, he has all kinds of shit going on. Jeff's always busy. Right. So that's and... not the issue. It's just, it's just jerking people around. Yeah. I know the new guy's going to make changes, but when you've got a guy that, obviously, you know, is, is, would be able to do a fabulous job in that capacity. And, and he's only been there for three months. Let's see what the fuck happens at all. And it's not okay. just cause it's Jeff, it's anybody else. These, the developmental talent that they bring in and then say, Oh, sorry, never mind." After they may have turned down shit in their life or moved across the country mm -hmm. or even I've, I even, even, even poor easy E old Eric B. <laughs> I even felt almost sorry for his scrawny uh, fucking ass having to be shipped back across the country to Wyoming or Montana <laughs> or wherever the fuck it is out there with the caribou yep. that he communes with after, you know, that's, what the fuck? And what, again, 60-year-old men allowing this shit to go on. Ah, it's a, it's a funny business. <laughs> at well, least from, from this uh, layperson's perspective. Speaking of a funny business, let's just go, let's segue into this 
related topic in the WWE. Some people are happier now. Some people are getting happy. Some people are in better moods. Maybe not the executives, but some of the talent. They're actually getting to have, depending on the impact or who's involved, there are two names, their own names back, their real names, whatever. There, there are changes afoot in people's given names, Christian names, and gimmick names. Is this what I'm hearing? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I mean, it's... Eh. You never know from week to week, but there, there, you know, for every uh, theory, and then we have Eo Iyo Sky, who was Eo Shirai. Boy, it's really hard to keep score without uh, a scorebook. Well, and also they're they're starting to make up names. They were getting so far out there, and maybe they'll be able to reel some of this back too, because. Um, I see, I see, I think Buddy might be allowed to you have two names again. Is he still there, or was it the other guy I'm thinking about? Oh, well. Um, well maybe Buddy's gone. But... Yeah, well, Buddy Matthews is part of the uh, infamous House of Black in oh, all elite right. wrestling. He's, he's Buddy Black now over there. He changed his name again. But, um, yes. but anyway, no, no, it's, it's oh, God damn it, help me out. It's yeah. the uh, Lucha fellow, the Hispanic fellow, the Angel Garza. Yes. Apparently has teased people on social media. He gets to he gets to have two names again instead of just being Garza. Which sounds like one of those pre-fucking superhero Marvel horror comics villains that they would come from outer space or the core of the earth. Here he comes, Gort and Bloot and Tim Fang Boom. And all those, you know, so but anyway. Um, I, I was thinking more like a, a 70s cop procedural like kojak kojak or sounds like cannon. a noise, noise you make right before you vomit garza garza but yeah but it, so they're they're loosening up on the name game surely 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 boo burly um because i guess in addition to the terminology oh on smackdown which we'll get to in a minute i heard people saying wrestling and wrestlers uh, so they're easing up on the, the terminology now that Vince is gone. But, uh, you know, just some of the names that they have come up with that are that you've never seen people named this before, but they're still supposed to be regular names. I'm not talking about The Undertaker or, you know, fucking Kane or whatever, Cactus Jack. I'm just talking about odd first and last names, interchangeable generic shit you can't remember how right. hard is it to to remember john cena uh -huh. but, you know then these interchangeable are they is it because they're cool or hip with the kids are they looking at baby books <laughs> seeing what all the the cool folks down at hate ashbury are naming their little offspring these days but i mean yeah even then well, just some of the more oddball names coming out of NXT. There's got to be like an NXT name generator there that has some like <laughs> artificial intelligence from, uh, I don't know, favorite pet names from no, 1997. I, I it's, a, it's a Scrabble game and they just throw the fucking tiles at random and see what pops up. But the, the reason why this came up and why everybody's been talking about names again is because the the darling has returned 
and he's un- and he's using the same name and the same face. Yes. Johnny Gargano came back to wrestling. Oh joy, oh bliss! The business has been saved, and he's using his the name he was using there before. Imagine that. I mean, I know it's not out of the bounds of possibility they would change it after five years or whatever, but for whatever reason. They seem to like this guy. And for the kind of people who like that kind of thing, I guess he's the kind of thing those people like. But obviously this is the furthest thing from a game changer in any wrestling war that Johnny Gargano, Johnny Sameface, no Mrs. Sameface with him this time, but Johnny Sameface has returned to entertain us with his generic build, his diminutive body, his pale complexion, his undemonstrative face and his general overall silly demeanor. <laughs> well, yep. Cleveland's uh, favorite hometown uh, wrestler. He's Did, back. Do you He's remember the- when, it, when he was trying to, he and, and Mrs. Same Face were trying to keep old Dexter Loomis from hooking up with old Indy Hartwell and he put on a scuba suit and a fake shark skin or shark fin to uh to scare him off the beach ah ah yes peak nxt that's some (laughs) storytelling let me tell you so i know there's a segment of the audience that appreciates his technical brilliance in the ring even though he's bland expressionless uh, personalityless and couldn't sell pussy on a troop train much less a ticket to a wrestling match but can't we all agree and, and that it's they're going a little too far on Twitter on so when this was headlines and it was Johnny Gargano it's like some it was like Cena's come back full time or my God here's Steve Austin in his prime are they going a little a little over uh, overboard on this just this I know he's a Triple H guy and that's probably why he sat at home. And did his daddy thing with his new baby and just waited, figuring, well, fucking Vince is older than I am. He'll die eventually. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's a, I guess there is a, a certain subset of uh, WWE fans who remember Johnny from, you know, all of his fine work in NXT being the, what was he, the the first wrestler in NXT to win the uh, so-called Triple Crown uh, tag team NXT heavyweight and North American titles. And I understand he was also at one time the nicest guy in prison. That was a bigger honor. Absolutely. He got a a key from the warden for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's somebody who I I guess looked favorably upon by uh, new management and is being brought in, and is looks like he's getting uh, paired up and resuming old business with uh, Austin Theory, or Theory. Well, and there's... That's another thing! God damn it! Theory, they started pushing as a phenom. Vince, he was Vince's hand-picked... You know, protege, Vince was going to be his mentor. That's how they were giving him the rub on television. They put a belt on him. Then they took the belt off of him. 
Then now he's been floating around with other. Now it, he's going to be working with a guy that technically, yes, the guy can perform all the moves, but he has indie style matches, which is the last thing that Theory needs to get in the habit of. He's what a foot shorter than Theory is. Mm-hmm. Compare the physiques and tell me that it doesn't look like a bodybuilder taking his fucking, you know, diabetic nephew out for ice cream. <laughs> and this is going to be a competitive program thing between the theory needs to be in the mix with top guys in order not only to learn the style of working that the top guys there have, but also to be brought up in the people's eyes and in the, in the fans eyes as, as he's an upper echelon guy to mix with the top talent. Right. Instead of here, this guy just came back from his glorious run in NXT a year ago after he, his wife had a baby. Uh, right. And then of course, keep in mind that, uh, theory is a holder of the MacGuffin known as money in the bank. And so he, <laughs> you know, He's got pretty much till WrestleMania to uh, pop that open. So, you know. But that's what I'm afraid of, because a lot of times I think that they justify what they do to themselves up there. Well, he's got the money in the bank. That's his heat. And he can cash that anytime and boom, and we'll be right back to the. No, you won't be right back to the races. If the guy's been fucking around with fucking guys half his size, guys from NXT that are either not ready or goddamn aren't hadn't been presented at the level of the main roster talent. You know, if they right now from what I've seen on the A and E programs over the past week or so, I'd do something with theory and edge because theory mm. comes off to me as a guy. Cause now they've killed the judgment day. Right, They took the whole reason for the group as well as the spokesman, as well as the main event level star that gave the whole thing an era of credibility. They took that out of it, so fuck it. Poor Rhea. Put Edge with Theory. Edge was a guy that had a dream to be a wrestler. It looks like Theory's this good, this young. It means he's probably been applying himself for a while, at least thinking about it mentally. I've never met the guy, don't know him. But Edge was a guy that wanted to be a wrestler from a young age and and sacrificed, was willing to do everything it took and turned out to be a great performer. And then uh, seems to be a person who would want to pass that on. He came off so likable. We'll talk about that later on in the biography special. So why not take a guy like that that's winding his career down over the next year and put him with a guy like Theory? Edge is... Don't let him do the goddamn ladder, table, chairs, Ugh. baseball, bat fucking matches for either one of their sakes. Edge, because he's, you know, bad neck and theory, because why? Um, but let them have a program and let Edge teach this guy in the ring in front of big crowds what timing is and, and how the top level guys work there and how to feel crowds and milk shit. It, Give him a postgraduate education, and you'd be doing something positive for everybody. Yeah, well, that's entirely too logical, Jim. That's uh, logic is uh, it ebbs and flows. It's a quite a commodity in world well, wrestling entertainment. And I mean, I've watched. Uh, we'll talk about SmackDown. I keep saying we'll talk about these. I swear we <laughs> will. 
I swear we will, but I'm trying to go back through my notes now and remember mm. if they told me anything on SmackDown about what Edge is even fucking doing. I can't even remember now this thing. I'm looking through these notes. Where's Edge? Where's Edge? I don't see any Edge. I think some. Right. I've seen a lot of Edge on Biography and on uh, Rivals. So the point is, uh, again, you know, they they are on their own retrospective shows telling stories of how a guy that was more established worked with a guy that was on his way up and less established and they both prospered because of it even more and they're not doing that with the the, the guys that they really want they need to pick two or three guys that they really want to elevate as far as they possibly can and take care of them and put them in the ring against and with nothing but top other top talent and let them win more than they lose. Mm. And if anybody considers Johnny Gargano main event talent, the WWE universe, that is an indictment of the fucking WWE talent roster. Mm. Oh. You want to talk about this SmackDown while I'm on the subject of this I'm just taking sure. this thing over. I don't know. Lou, be more forceful. God damn it. Oh. Well, you have any you other know. comments to make about anything? Anybody I've pissed off so far before we move on? Nope. I think the only thing <laughs> I would say is that, uh, you know, you're you're the name that trends worldwide, uh, even when you're not doing anything. <laughs> your Your name falls from the chicken lips of Pat McAfee on Friday night. And then all of a sudden, the social media world is ablaze with your mention of your your position as co-host of episode one. Well, thankfully, he didn't mention my position at, at, at that particular point because it was prone and probably with my <laughs> balls in my hand because I was asleep. But go ahead. <laughs> yes. And so, yes, yeah, SmackDown uh, reached the arbitrary 1200th episode on Friday, in uh, Montreal in the province of Quebec. And so at the top of the show, McAfee was uh, jabbering with Michael Cole and said, I was 11 years old when you and Jim Cornette called that <laughs> momentous show. And, and of course, if you looked at Michael Cole, he had to dip his head a little. Looks he like popped he, for me. He, he popped, popped for me. He broke. It was, it was, it was it, yeah. I'm, you know, here's the thing. Michael... I, Michael and I have never had a crossword and I enjoyed him as a person and he, and uh, you know, it wasn't hard to work with him. It's maybe a little bit harder than it is now. Cause he was brand fucking new then. Hmm. And it, it, every once in a while you get the deer in the headlights thing. Like, what do we do now? Cause he'd never done it before. But, um, uh, but no, I had fun with Michael, but, uh, that was Pat McAfee doesn't have chicken lips now. Pat's <laughs> our boy. Uh, I'll, I'll, I won't bestow chicken lips upon him, okay. but yeah, it was the 1200th program, as you mentioned. And uh, Pat was, uh, you know, uh, mentioning that he was 11 years old. That makes me feel, well, I was only 24 back then, maybe give or take of 10 years yeah. or so. But anyway, uh, it was April 29th, 1999. And Michael Cole and I did the pilot for the very first, uh, the very first SmackDown episode, which was the pilot for the ongoing series that debuted that fall for the UPN network back then. 
And that was a big deal because at that time, since the NBC deal, the last NBC deal they had had, and then they had had one or two maybe specials on Fox a few years before, but they hadn't been on any kind of network TV, the WWE. In, uh, that was 1999, so what, what it had been? Five, six, seven years at least, I think. And uh, do, you, do you remember off the top of your head? Uh, not off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll do some digging. See if you can Google that. Um, yes. But it was a big deal to them in time internally in the studio and in the office because the UP, do they still have the UPN net? Maybe you ought to Google <laughs> that first. Is the UPN network still even around? Well, it's uh, back a while ago, UPN and the WB uh, merged to become that the, is the CW. CW. And I should have remembered and, that because our station in Louisville here with Ohio Valley Wrestling was the WB. Uh, and they were the actually the strongest signal in town at one point. They put up a brand new transmitter, and they had to gear the power back. It was supposed to be channel thirty four out of. I was Smoky Mountain Wrestling was. This is a side trip here while you're googling things. Smoky Mountain Wrestling was on a little station in Campbellsville, Kentucky, channel thirty four, and they ran it out of a mobile home. And suddenly, when Louisville got a new TV station, I find out that it's the uh, Channel 34 from down here in Campbellsville, but they've got a, a, an open license in Louisville and were able to make the switch, and they started Channel 7 here in Louisville, WBKI. And the first, uh, it was 7 on cable, but it was still Channel 34 over the air. But the first uh, antenna, the transmitter that they put up was so powerful that people were picking it up on, like, 33, 34, 35, and we have a channel 32, so it was gumming shit up. They had to cut their power back. But anyway, uh, I don't know why I mentioned, oh, you, we were a WB affiliate at the same year. I believe it was 98 or 99. Uh, networks popped up from the UPN, United Paramount Network, and WB, which was Warner Brothers. And so there were more network choices and that was a big deal with the office at the time they were trying to get back on network tv broadcast affiliates in all the locations which i've said is always said is more important for drawing live event crowds to wrestling your local broadcast television than cable um right but and, anyway and, and by did the you way, find I, out the network information yeah looking up here on God help us, Wikipedia. So, ah. um, let's see. There was a gap. The last uh, Saturday Night's main event, number 31, uh, aired on Fox October 27th, 1992. And then there was a gap of almost 14 years. The next one aired on NBC on March 18th, 2006. Okay, so so basically UPN was the, the network debut of some network for the first time in seven years. And then they right. were looking forward to it. But here's the deal. It was a pilot episode. They wanted to make sure that it was polished and good and et cetera. So it wasn't a live broadcast. They taped it. And then Michael Cole and I did voiceovers at the studio, as we often did with syndicated TV or episodes of raw that weren't live back in those days or whatever 
So we voiced it over, and the reason that it was Michael Cole and myself, Michael had been doing syndication, I think, at that point. That was still a thing, and, you know, it was the various ancillary shows. J.R. and Lawler were the Raw team, and that was USA Network, and this was going to be another network, and if they picked it up, they didn't, they didn't want to have the same announced team. And Michael Cole was their next, you know, play-by-play guy that they wanted to push behind JR because, as we've mentioned, Kevin Dunn liked Michael Cole. He had a background in real news, even though Kevin Kelly was more advanced as a wrestling broadcaster. So they're grooming Michael, and honestly, Kevin Dunn wasn't particularly a fan of it, but otherwise than Lawler in the company at that point in time, they had nobody else doing color that was ready to do a network pilot. So I was the guy. And, and that's what Michael Cole was sitting there at one time. At one, we were taking one of the breaks and he said, cause he knew I already knew at that point, everybody knew I was coming to Louisville to work with, with OVW. Uh, this was the end of April of 99 and that uh, we had settled on that April, May, June, cause I came here July 1st. So three months in advance. So the first of that month, they knew I was moving and Michael Cole says, well, what are you going to do if uh, they, you know, pick us up in September or whatever? I said, well, you're going to be coming to Louisville every week, I guess is the only way I can figure this. Cause I'm going, I don't know about you. But anyway, so apparently, as you mentioned at the top of this drawn-out segment, by, by mentioning my name, I trended on Twitter again. When Pat McAfee mentioned my name, they're, oh, they talked about him. And so I thank everybody who was happy to hear my name. But goddamn, that's the thing Stace was saying the other day. She Because, you know, on Friday night, they turn on Pat McAfee, and, and then just last week, we turn on Spinguli, and there I'm on Spinguli or whatever it was two weeks ago. She said, God damn, I can't get away from you. Every time I just turn on a regular television show or something, they're talking about you. I said, I'm, I'm popular. <laughs> I'm, I'm trendy McTrenderson. <laughs> yes, indeed. But anyway, so talking about the 1200th episode of SmackDown and what they did on it, I got Ronda Rousey and have they it would it be more possible to cool someone that was hot off if they just threw her in a an ice bath or did that ice bucket challenge with her and they keep putting oh. her in these positions where not only does it quite require her to be a a an accomplished public speaker an orator a thespian if you will but also there there's the whole attraction of Ronda Rousey was that she was real. She was legitimate, right? She was the real deal in the UFC. She was the judo champion. She was the baddest girl on the planet. So they not only bring her in here and they've been making her speak and try to get across this, whatever they've got her doing that she's, just ain't she ain't got her heart in it or she can't do it or whatever everybody's noticed she seems blah these days but have you ever seen an arrest phone lou how many times have you been arrested in your life be honest with the people well see none that i care to discuss what none that you care to discuss i guess was the qualifier 
but certainly you've seen, let's put it this way, you've seen people be arrested. Oh, sure. Yeah. See, now now you're coming around. <laughs> Was this the phoniest looking arrest you've ever seen in your life? Boy, yeah. Even when it comes to the artifice and stagecraft of uh, past uh, law enforcement actions on WWE programming, yeah, this was not good. The so-called uh, cops were, uh, no, they, they, <laughs> they were okay, not well, very convincing. You know, if you didn't see SmackDown, we're running off and leaving the folks. Let me give a brief synopsis. Uh, Ronda Rousey comes out, even though she's been suspended and Adam Pierce comes out with security and begs her to leave the premises. And Ronda Rousey, in, a, in a, about as threatening a way as I would talk to the mailman who I actually like, don't make me choose violence. <laughs> and then security walks it to, down to the ring awkwardly, two at a time, there's four of them, two get in, and it's obvious that not only are they fake security, they've never done this before, they're scared to death, they don't know what to do. They just walk over and stand in a, a stagey way, and one tries to grab Rhonda's arm, and Rhonda does a few half-hearted kicks and a couple of judo throws, and the two first security guys bail out. And of course, any security guy, always once you're taken down by the perpetrator, you slide out and let the other security guys come in and handle it. Because once oh, yeah. you take one bump, you're disqualified, right? Well, I mean. Yeah, that's yeah. in Security Academy. That's, that's the first, the first that's role is, is, yeah, self-preservation. Yeah, if they take you down once, you got to slide out and let the rest of the guys fight to fight. So the first two slide out, and the second one, second two come up on the apron, and one gets a knee lift, and then the other one gets in and gets a judo throw, and then she arm bars that guy, and he... I wish that the wrestlers had facials like this. Mm-hmm. Because he really sold it, but the problem is it was even more flagrantly fakery that he was selling like that when he's a security and he's tapping out. He's a security guy. <laughs> he's trying to arrest somebody or detain somebody. He's tapping. So, <laughs> oh god damn it! So then Adam <laughs> Pierce brings out two fake uniformed police, a man and a woman. Now I, I might have bought that the woman was a real cop because she looks like she looked like one of those fucking, you know, Maud from New Jersey type of cops, like an Italian or whatever. But the guy looked like he was what? 13 years old and they're standing there so awkward looking and they're trying to have stone face and I'm obviously not breaking any news here or telling anybody any secrets. I've been arrested a time or two. And none of the cops, whether they didn't want to arrest me, but they were doing their duty, and there was a few of those at the arenas where, you, you know, well, we got a complaint, so we got to do it. Yeah, okay. Or whether they were really anxious to, to either one, they, they, they don't act like this. And so then... They stare the baddest woman on the planet, Ronda Rousey, down. The two of the woman is five foot four, and the man's, like I said, you know, he'd get carded to buy bubble gum. And they stare her down, and she puts her wrists out and allows herself to be handcuffed and then walked out. 
And then the camera followed. Now, that was flat as a plate full of piss in the arena, by the way. Mm. People just went, and they just walked (laughs) out. But the camera in the back following them to the back or out back of the arena. And there's Ronda Rousey trash talking them and bitching the whole way. And they're just still doing the stone face and what they believe to be the perp walk. Have none of these people ever been arrested? I refuse to believe that none of the people involved in these setup, or maybe that's why they need a few more of us old-time wrestling people that have been to the Crossbar Hotel, done some boarding with the warden, lived on the bounty of the county to set these things up. Because this, it was, and this is not a thing that's new in wrestling. I mean, there in in the old days, back in the pioneer days, 30s, 40s, whatever, actually the cops used to arrest for real some of the wrestlers that either started a riot or engaged in what they believed to be disorderly conduct. You can go back and check the old newspaper files. Um, In some cases, the cops weren't smart back then. A lot of people weren't smart in the 30s and 40s to the wrestling business. And if they saw the heel do something, they took it as seriously. And in some cases, they were arrested, which the promoter didn't go and bail the guy out and consider it great publicity. And then as the territories formed, sometimes that, that was worked. What used to happen for real because the territory promoters, the local guys, they started knowing people that were on the police forces and there's Mm -hmm. there's rules for i've done some of these things with various law enforcement personnel and there's different rules for what they can and can't do in uniform out of uniform depending on what law enforcement branch they're in you've got city police county police sheriff's deputies constables game wardens all that type of shit and some of the boys have also doubled as Cops And in East Tennessee, the Mongolian Stomper transferred prisoners for years for the, the uh, uh, police department there and the local prison system. And uh, one of the guys that uh, was friends with Buddy Landell, Kim Birchfield, ran for sheriff in, up in Johnson City and did an angle with us one time where I think he arrested Buddy and took him to jail. <laughs> but the point is, all you have to do if you're going to do an arrest and it's not the, these arrests are not even as as legitimate looking and as believable or as convincing as the fake ones on dramatic television shows. Get a goddamn technical advisor. Some wrestler on that roster has a good friend or some family member or somebody he knows in law enforcement. I can't believe we've gotten that far away from that. All the boys used to know a cop. That's why we had Dean Hill here in Louisville. The OVW announcer was retired from the Louisville police force after 25 years, was a member of the SWAT team at one time, bodyguarded people after he knew what the fuck he arrested somebody in OVW for us or had him arrested one time. The point is you get somebody real and it's a national television program. Fly them the fuck in to wherever. Mm-hmm. One legitimate cop that's with it, that's in a that's smart to the business, and not and obviously not a mark, but smart to the business business, and have them either pick extras that look like that they would <laughs> actually be on some type of 
force right and teach them how to act that way and then walk through a legitimate arrest with them and if Rhonda's got a here that the once they make it too showbiz because once mm-hmm. she's done the judo throw and gotten a fucking kimura on somebody that's when she needs to get swarmed and then it looks real you don't have any real security personnel or any especially any real uniformed legitimate police officers taking bumps over and over for anybody Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar, Ronda Rousey, whatever the fuck, it just don't happen that way. They don't allow themselves to be opened up like that. If you had one good bump-taken security guard that potentially might be 45 years old, so they didn't look like the indie goddamn wrestling school of the moment, and he puts his hands on her in a legitimate way, and she does a legitimate throw, and the other one goes, I've seen Dennis Condry do this actually to a cop. Hmm. When the cops turned on us in Saginaw, Michigan, after we jumped on a mark that kicked Bobby, one of the Dennis was on the mark and one of the cops tried to fucking grab him and put him in a fucking hammer lock. And he blocked the fucking hammer lock on his right arm with his left arm behind his back to his wrist. I'm leaning over in the microphone now, <laughs> actually doing this in my home. <laughs> And fucking came back out around and the cop got fucking hot. But the point is, one judo throw, one of them grabs her arm and she fucking locks on a double wrist lock real quick and everybody else is going to swarm her. And that's what it, then that's the way it's going to, and that would look legitimate. And then when she's down and they say, stop resisting, then she can get the fire in her fucking eyes and she can look up at Pierce whoever's instigated this and she can make the goddamn comment that you can take me out now, but you can't take me out for good. I'll be back. I'll be back. Right. Fuck. And then what? And then drag her out. You know how they used to carry the fans out of the Louisville gardens when they'd hit the ring. One cop would put them in a full Nelson and the other cop would hook their fucking legs up like a wheelbarrow behind him. And they would carry that mother. His feet wouldn't touch the floor from the time they left the ring till the time they got in the back alley. That's the way. And and if you're if you're going to do something like that, don't just do fake television. Get it over. Right. Yeah. It's, <sighs> you know, I think it's just. I don't know if uh, the folks in creative or or whomever are just you know just kind of get lazy and fall into these tropes where they don't, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this. And, and I think, you know, and I think the fan base is conditioned now to be like, okay, uh, here's where the indie talent comes in or the wrestling school, you know, here come, uh, Jacques Rougeau students in this case or something. I, I'm I'm not even going to malign any young wrestling school students. Uh, some of those guys may be great workers, but the thing is, for fuck's sake, they don't look like police or security. They look like they're twelve-year-old, intimidated, scared. It, it, I know there's forty-year-old independent wrestling stars out there. Fly some of them in, Ryan. But they don't. These guys didn't look like they could throw out the baby's bathwater. So yeah. And, you know, when you mention knowing people who are cops, you got to think, 
Uh, I thought of at least one WWE alumnus, Rico Constantino. Yeah. You know? Rico a- could throw you out. He could, th- he could throw anybody out. He's, you know, yeah, that's the or, thing. It's, it's not that hard. Right. Yeah. And then, well, and then the, you know, the cops in qu- air quotes take out uh, Rod Rousey, put her in the vehicle. And then, uh, well, let's see. Right before that, Rhonda put the button on the whole segment by looking at Adam Pierce and saying, nice haircut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's what I'm saying when I'm, I'm going to jail, I'm going to fucking make a sarcastic, non-profane remark at the guy that pressed charges on me or whatever. Right. Especially when he's, uh, smooth as a, as a hard boiled egg yeah. on top. So. Okay. Well, speaking of smooth as a hard-boiled egg, the next match was for the WWE Women's Tag Team Championship Tournament, and I smoothly grabbed my remote and skipped right past this uh, mm. because it was Sonya Deville and Natalia against Toxic Attraction, old Gigi Allen and Jane Wayne Gacy, who have apparently replaced Lions and Stark. But now we hear after this that Gigi Allen is injured, and so they're going to be replaced yet again. And uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but you know the way I feel. If you've listened to any of our programs, Lou, the way I feel about the toxic attraction gimmick, they it's a fake gimmick because they're selling it so hard in such stilted language, it can't be true. Nobody talks like that. They are actually saying about themselves, we, quote, live the seductive, sadistic rock star life. <laughs> no, even, even if you do, somebody else is supposed to say that about you. It's, uh, it's, fuck, and here they are, they're prancing down in the video, prancing down the street in these cool, young, hip locations. It's like a South Park parody video. Shitipa and Sopa. Uh, and besides one of these is the tampon girl from the Indies that yep. s- stuck the alleged used tampon in her opponent's mouth or whatever the fuck. Right. So I don't need to do any details. Uh, we're just hitting high points today on this program. Cause we got a long way to go in a short time to get there. But yeah, I could tell you as a result of, uh, Gigi Dolan's injury, uh, on the next SmackDown, their spot in the tournament, uh, toxic attraction. It's going to be decided by uh, the winner of a, what they're calling a second chance fatal four-way. <laughs> it's like, okay, more multi-person matches. Oh, God. And, and the winners will face the team of Raquel Rodriguez and Alia, uh, daughter of Rey Mysterio, in the next round. Well, Bailey and her girls bought tickets in the front row, and I at least they thought that might keep people's attention. But I'll, when Bailey gets back in the ring, we'll check back in with that. Yeah. Um, Sammy Zayn. Sammy Zayn was the pretty much almost the only life on this program. And imagine what it takes for me to say that. No. <laughs> I remind you and the rest of the listeners that this guy is the guy that I could not talk out of to save my life or his career being a masked mute luchador that never spoke and never showed his face. And he's now the most entertaining 
cunning linguist on SmackDown whenever Heyman's not around. And Zayn goes into Roman Reigns' locker room because Roman is, is summoned for him. And I, mean, I didn't get to see SmackDown week four last whenever because it was preempted due to that, that big preemption across the country due to ball games. I was one of the victims of that. But apparently Sammy and Jay Uso were having issues with each other. And as I'm sitting here watching this, I'm like, you know what, now I understand, because I know I'm overly critical of everything in wrestling because I'm overly critical of everything in wrestling, and I got the right to be, since I can do most of this stuff better than they can. But Roman Reigns is so good and looks so good and, and is himself, plays himself. And Sami Zayn was so good verbally and is so weasel and has the inflection and the delivery that the material that they're doing is as phony as fuck. It's as phony as a football bat, but I was still enjoying it. It wasn't, at least it wasn't the bad delivery with the bad material that we usually get. And Sammy is sucking up in the backhand or the passive aggressive way or whatever. And he's kind of putting Roman Reigns off to be mad at, at, Jey Uso instead of him and he kind of gets him to do it and then he's celebrating behind Roman's back and the whole nine yards and then the, the, so then suddenly as Jey Uso calls on Roman Reigns' phone and Roman says who answer that because he's in the other he's taking a piss whatever he's doing Sammy answers it there's trouble at the border. They won't be there. And I swear to God, that's the most believable thing they said all night because they're in <laughs> Canada. And it used to, whenever we do a Ring of Honor show in Toronto, you never knew who they were going to stop and detain and turn back and your whole card would be fucked. And the first time we did a big sold-out show at that Ted Reeve Arena, we got in there. I, who was it now? God damn it. it. may have been Roderick Strong came in and said, oh, the Briscoes got stopped. They turned him away. I'm like, oh, God, he was ribbing me. But I was about to have a nervous breakdown. But anyway, trouble at the border. They won't be there. The Usos can't be there, but Sammy is. So Roman sends Sammy out to win the Intercontinental title and and do his bidding tonight, and he asked Sammy if he was still cool with that Owens, and, and he's, oh, yeah, yeah, we're a great buzz. Well, let him know I don't owe anybody anything ever. Oh, well, I haven't talked to him in a while, but, you know, if I see him, I'll make sure he knows, you know. I, again, I couldn't talk this guy to taking the fucking mask off, that expressive face. I couldn't talk him into doing promos when the wrestling promotion that he worked for had been bought by a television company and they already had a TV show on HD net, but that wasn't big enough for him. But he's, I've always said he could work, but he's goddamn entertaining as fuck. This was horseshit phony material, but they were fun with it. Yeah. And, uh, Sammy Zane was fortunate to, uh, be in Montreal. And in Montreal, Sami Zayn is more over than uh, Schwartz's smoked meat on poutine. <laughs> so, you know, he's he, he's playing to the best crowd possible. But you know, and, and I'm and I know, and the crowd did give him a great ovation when he came out here in a minute for the shit they put him in. 
Um, but just the performance also, you know, I got to give him credit on that one. And everybody says that I never liked those guys. They were pains in the fucking ass to deal with, but I give credit where credit is due. Speaking of credit, I will say this briefly and move on. They had a package on Gunther and Shaky Nakamura that I missed due to the preemption. And Gunther again is my favorite. I love him. He's the best wrestler in the world today at being himself. He does exactly what he should do, and he's perfect. Speaking of not perfect and what people should not do, Lou Kippelman? Yes, at sir. Least, at least they put the Duprees and the male models and Massey and Mansois and Menage all together with Hit Row in the same segment, because this was the most painful thing I've gone through since either my last root canal or when they took the final surgical staple out on the incision scar for my last hernia surgery. Yeah, you could definitely... <sighs> boy, you, you could probably put a mic in front of every bathroom in America and figure out that uh, by the amount of flushes during that segment, that people uh, were not were not closely watching. I I actually had to flush while I was still watching it. Uh, uh, to be quite honest with you, okay. Well, so well, you're a multitasker. I I do try to get things done. Um. So Max and Max, they've got poor L.A. Knight, Eli Drake. Which yeah, I can't I, remember which name came in which order, but right. He's still Max Dupree, and they're still doing the male model thing with Massey and Mansois. Right, and I thought and, he, I thought I thought Max was being phased out. So, well, and, and all I, of a sudden I, he's back. I thought they were trying to save his career. Yeah. Maybe it's just that Vince was mad at him and said, "Then fuck him, take it out if he because he didn't like it." But they said, "Well, just come on and try." I don't know, but again, everybody made a big deal out of. Hit Row coming back, minus Swerve, who signed with AEW. But they, they got AJ, they got, uh, 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 oh, goddamn, B-Fab, and what's the other fella's name? Top Dollar. Top Dollar. Um, so they got AJ, they got Top Dollar, and they got B-Fab back. And I've never seen any of these people wrestle, I don't believe. Maybe once, back when they were there before. But Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, at least they interrupted the male model interview after about 30 seconds, it hit Rose music. But yeah. old AJ, first of all, he better be able to work because he looks like a fat fucking auto mechanic. He just came out, I, I guess that's their gimmick. They dress in the appropriate cultural garb or whatever. But right. Suddenly, they just get in the ring and they throw both the male models who we've never seen do anything physical under this persona. So we don't, are they top guys? Are they jokes? What are they supposed to be? So now we know they're jokes because Hit Row just goes in and grabs both these guys and just throws them out of the ring. And they don't try to come back. And the one guy, did you see the over-the-top rope bump? Nobody taught him how to take the bump over the top rope. Ugh. And it looked like he almost broke his back. He grabbed the top rope with both hands mm -hmm. and cartwheeled over it, which is Ooh. 
the, the first time I ever went over the top rope, that's what I did. And then they said, you know, don't do that anymore. And then I cut down going over the top rope because I couldn't ever get it the right way. I stuck with the middle rope. But nevertheless, then suddenly, is this going to be what Hit Row does on TV every week? They don't, they don't wrestle. They launch into a musical performance with lighting and microphones and spotlights and a backing track that lasts forever. AJ grunts the same words over and over. <laughs> I got I got the point that they're back. All the way back. All the way back. I wish they'd go all the way back out. If they're going to yeah. do that, B-Fab needs to be quiet. Did you see when AJ leaned into the camera and he babbled off, then they blew off some pyro? I know I don't like rap. I mm-hmm. understand that. But I don't know if you're a... A, a, a rap meister, if you're a, a connoisseur of the rapping, but was this good rap? Is there such a thing as good rap? Was this good rap? There is such a thing as good rap, and this was nowhere near it. Uh, by the way, slight correction, the the other member of Hit Row is Ashante the Adonis. Oh! And they, because AJ is top dollar. Oh, because so. he is. Yes, but uh, uh, yeah, as far as musical product, uh, no, I was not buying it. It went on forever. This was to music what Stephen Hawking is to Olympic pole vaulting. <laughs> and I've heard people say that, well, these, these, this is a hit row. They look like stars. Explain to me how they look like stars. Maybe, you know, if they're maybe in a, Still photo, they look like a rap group. They obviously can't rap. They can say a lot of words, but I don't know if this was either to the music or against the music or however, behind the music, however it's supposed to be related to the music. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't know. So, yeah. and I mean, yeah, doing uh, live sound, live music in a, uh, you know, in such a large venue that I'm sure it would be very easy to get behind the beat or to have some sort of lag or delay. I think think they got beat up, but I don't think (laughs) they were behind it. I think they got beat up. So hopefully they won't do this anymore. But apparently this is their thing, so I bet they're going to do it a lot more. You know, it was 45 minutes into the program, Lou, and you know at that point I was losing patience, and of course by that point that means that it's going on nine o'clock Eastern time here in the, uh, in the castle. And you know, that means that I'm starting to get sleepy and I'm thinking about a good night's sleep at that point. Well, you know, how, you know how important a good night's sleep is, don't you? Oh, you better believe it. That's uh, yeah. One of my favorite avocations. As a matter of fact, it sounds like I've put you to sleep right now. And I'm sure I'll do the same thing for the folks before the show is over with. But folks, if you'd like to get a good night's sleep after watching Hit Row, if you're afraid you're going to have nightmares, fear not. Fear not. Because if you go to sleep on a Helix sleep mattress, you will not have horrible nightmares. Because they got a mattress for everybody, even people who have fever dreams and acid flashbacks overnight. They provide tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. They've got 14 unique mattresses, 
14, I'll have you know, which is even more than 12, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, a mattress just for kids. You ought to see this thing. It's so cute. It's only three feet long and two feet wide. God damn, it's as cuter than a speckled pup. But how do you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body, Lou? And of course, your body. Lou, I've seen your body. My God, you're going to leave that body to science fiction after you die. How do you know that the mattress works for a body like that that has things protruding from it in all shapes and directions? That's because you take the Helix Sleep Quiz. That's what you do, Lou. I I didn't know there'd be a quiz. There's a quiz because it's easy. You know all the answers. You know all the answers on this quiz. You're going to get 100 every time. Oh, no, you get a hundred every time on this because it's all up to you. It's your choice. It's your taste. You go to helixsleep.com and you take their two-minute quiz on what kind of mattress you want based on how you sleep and what you pre- your preferences, your desires, your wants, your needs, your aspirations, and your dreams. And they, they, the folks at Helix Sleep, will deliver to your home a mattress that encapsulates all those qualities that you asked for in your individually selected mattress. And every Helix mattress has a hybrid design, which combines individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. You remember coils. That's what JR accused the AEW roster of clustering up like when they're waiting on dives. Well, now you can have coils in your brand new Helix Sleep mattress. And again, they've got the either 10 or 15 year warranty, depending on the model. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. And if you don't love it, you ungrateful bastards, they'll not only pick it up for you, but they'll give you your money back. And Brian Last has instructed me that while he's gone, I should not insinuate that people will then come to your home a few days later seeking retribution. So. If anything does happen at your home, I didn't infer that at all. But if you don't want to take my word for it, go to GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress by both magazines, and of course, Wired Magazine, Tony Khan's favorite. And the Helix Sleep Mattress (laughs) is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors. Chiropractor, chiropractors. Yes. Chiropractors, uh, chiropractors, and doctors of sleep medicine. I didn't know that there were doctors of sleep medicine. I knew there were doctors of thugonomics and doctors of style, but now the doctors of sleep medicine have decided that the Helix Sleep Mattress is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Lou, it's amazing. Uh, you've, You've sold me, man. Well, you've already already taken a nap. You've curled up. And I'll tell you something else, folks. Helix supports the military, the first responders, the teachers, and students by giving them a special discount on their website. And already, again, you can go to helixsleep.com slash JCE, and they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash jce and so you're getting two hundred dollar up to two hundred dollars off you're getting free pillows 
You're getting discounts if you're military, first responders, teachers, and students. You'd think since these are mattresses, they'd give ladies of the evening a discount also in their line of work. they got to go through a lot of these. As Stu Hart would say, hoors. But nevertheless, <laughs> you should never have to compromise on comfort. And Helix will not make you do that. They got the cooling technology that regulates your body temperature. They get all kinds of bells and whistles on these things. As I mentioned, prettier and cuter than a brand new speckled pup. Once again, up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. If you go to helixsleep.com slash JCE with Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, Jim, speaking of sleep, we were soundly put to bed under the covers by the soporific sounds of Hit Row. Ooh, good word. Soporific. I like that. Uh, yeah. So, so let's, uh, oh, what happened next on SmackDown? <laughs> what happened next on SmackDown? Well, Baron Von Corbin versus Seamus versus Ricochet versus Mosh Pit Moss and Sami Zayn. And of course, Zayn comes out last. He's in Montreal, his hometown. A huge ovation. I, honest to God, after that promo that he did earlier, I would have gone for a title shot in Montreal. But it was a five-way match, and they always suck, and they didn't even put Zane over. They put fucking Seamus over because they're going to clash at the castle, and that's more important than getting the big ovation in Montreal. Blah, blah, blah. I know that. But, right. bleh. Yeah. But at least they put together the, so that uh, Sammy got to be the, the wounded warrior. He was, uh, you know, had a messed up shoulder after taking white noise from Seamus. And so, of course, like all good multi-person matches, Sammy was gone for a good portion of the match, and then he, he, he came back. But yeah, he came back. And got involved uh, somewhat in the finish. So, so you know, they got him in the, in the, in the moments of note. Can we, can we please, can we please try to have matches involving person versus person instead of the five, four and five way? It's not a competition. It's goddamn demolition derby. <sighs> Up next on SmackDown was a video package featuring the new and improved and fearsome Viking Raiders. They did a video of them, the the Viking ceremony, the whole nine yards. The video looked great. They're doing makeup. Those guys, I actually managed them once in a previous incarnation on an independent show. And I said, Jesus Christ, those guys can go. And their shit looked good. And they're big guys, but they can move around. But they have, they've looked like a bunch of fucking morons. And when they were, you know, the the previous cartoon version of Vikings... Now, I guess, like I said, with this video, they're trying to make them look a little more adult, but they delivered lines here in this. Both guys, they had plenty of terminology and warriors and blah, 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 and that'd be great too. But we didn't get Mel Gibson and Braveheart here or whatever. We got two guys reading lines of consisting with words that they don't use in their normal everyday life, and they were reading... Sh I've, I think they were reading it off cue cards. 
And guys, if you're listening to this, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. If you're going to go with a a cool Viking warrior realism behind this that we would think that you say or do these things ever except to be on video. You're playing a part, which is a, a recurring theme in wrestling these days, and it's not good. And next up, it's a non-title match. Liv Morgan against Shotzi. Music entrance and the crowd goes mild. And she's facing Shayna Baszler, and she doesn't look like she could whip a Girl Scout. Because she looks the same size as one. And she's going to have a match with Shotzi. But Shotzi was given a backstage promo during er, before the match. And she didn't do a promo on the match. She did kind of an audition for a dramatic reading of something. So then they have the match, and Liv won, and Shayna hits the ring. She grabbed Liv, she cranked her arm to a to cocked and put the wrist down on the mat and leaned on it, and and then they were motionless. And poor old Charles Robinson is the referee, little Nate, and he's got to he's. He's bigger than both these girls, and he's an adult man, and he's just having to stand there with Pete in hand and watch her do this. He's not even trying to pull the girl off. So what, so I don't, none of this was exciting. We found out at least Pierce didn't press charges, so Rhonda has been released. She didn't fucking come back. She 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 got an early start and beat the traffic. Got to get back to Browsy Acres. All righty. Thank you for coming, Rhonda. At least she didn't have that annoying misdemeanor on her record. So the time had come. This was a main event segment because all of their main event talent pretty much doesn't wrestle regularly. Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar, blah, blah, blah. So here comes Roman. And he's got no Usos. They got stopped at the border. And he's got no Paul Heyman. Roman Reigns is there by himself. And I know he's a star. And he's the best thing on this program. But it was between four and five minutes from the start of his music to the time he got in the ring and said his first word. And that's another problem with this program is everything takes forever. If everybody on the program, including the people that are coming back, is still going to do long, slow, boring, phony-sounding shit. That's not really solving their problem. They need some spontaneity and some improv and some violence. Anyway, Roman's delivery, his voice, his look, his timing, everything is major league, and he's out there to make the point that he's the face of the company, not Drew McIntyre. And he did an excellent promo. He's got great facials and intensity. And then, of course, here comes Drew McIntyre. Anyway, Drew McIntyre's position, obviously, is that Roman Reigns doesn't deserve to be champion. And it's the Usos and Heyman that have propped him up. And Drew was fired up here as well. He did a good job. And he sees fear and concern in Roman Reigns' eyes and on his face. And he wants to fight. And they do. And Roman Reigns hits the Superman punch and turns around and does his roar and goes for the spear and fucking Drew Claymore kicks him right in the face and down he goes and boom and out out we go. And that was it. 
So we're going to find out what happens between these two at Clash at the Castle next weekend. Oh, get ready, Cardiff. To me, it was perfunctory. It was rote. Another good word. Uh, Two more good words. Yes. Uh, You know, Dibbergur. Somebody stop me. Hit me with my thesaurus. Yeah, it just seems like... Yeah. It I guess it's it's that there's no life to the WWE shows, whereas the AEW shows are so much of a clusterfuck all the time and everybody's so reckless that it's like watching, you know, the the car wreck happen. You can't turn away and well, I can turn away often on that. The other side, the clicks are forming, you know, or somebody's gonna come off the roof and land through a piece of furniture, you know, their innards are going to pop out. There's going to be something unprofessional, dangerous, concerning, silly, whatever, to watch on the AEW shows and the WWE shows, besides, as I said, the the Garganos and the banished NXT misfit toys. But their show's boring, because you know they're not going to do anything unprofessional and stupid, and nobody's going to go into business for themselves, and Nobody's going to get seriously injured right in front of our eyes. And the rest of the shit they're doing is phony. But that was SmackDown. And you know what needs SmackDown on the grill? Some great Omaha steaks. Folks, I'll tell you what. We're going to get to the meat of the matter right here, right now. No delay. Summer's in full swing. No backyard grill out is complete without a package from Omaha Steaks. And they got some new stuff going on now. There's a couple of different packages. The All-American Assortment has mouth-watering items from the butcher-cut filet mignons to the caramel apple tartlets and everything in between. And for a limited time, as a special gift to all of the Cult of Cornette, when you go to omahasteaks.com and type JCE in the search bar, you get the All-American Assortment. You're going to get 12. Omaha Steaks Burgers for free, 12 this time. They've never done this before. They've gone completely out of their minds. They're just crazy. 12 free burgers, you can fill up the whole grill just with the stuff they're going to send you for free. But if that doesn't tantalize and tickle your taste buds, folks, there's more cattle byproduct to choose from. You can go the build-your-own-perfect-menu option. And just pick your favorite items out of the options provided. Create your own grilling adventure. My God, it'll be like a Lewis and Clark expedition in the backyard. And you won't even have to slay the daggum wildlife. And that package, the build your own perfect menu, comes with, guess what? 12 free Omaha Steaks burgers. Again, You slap that cow meat on the grill, you're filling the whole thing up with what you're getting for free. Folks, go to omahasteaks.com. The keyword is JCE in the search bar, and you can fill your freezer with enough dead meat to keep your cookouts going strong all summer long. omahasteaks.com, keyword JCE, and your lips are going to smack your brains out. All right, well, somebody else is going to have to tell the life story of all those dead cows because we've got an A&E biography uh, still to talk about. I got to be honest with you, this was one of my favorite biographies because he's such a, it's a, the subject was such a nice, deserving person. 
I mean, we've had the biographies of other people in the past, and some of them have been nice. Mick Foley, for example. He's not an egotist. He's a, a great guy, still loves the business. And he just, he, you were happy for him. And also, because he's one of the younger guys that they've profiled, they have so much video. They had footage of the first wrestling show he ever went to as a fan. Can you? I, I don't know that that would have been possible for anybody else. Well, Kurt, Kurt Angle's first wrestling show was the ECW when he went to. They didn't want to show footage of that, but he's an odd duck. He's a special case. But it, but yeah, because he's the younger generation, so they have more video and they have more, you know, uh, uh, B-roll and, and visual representation to back things up. Um, and it, it was great. He decided that he wanted to be a wrestler at his first show that he saw. And I got to be honest with you. I don't know that, uh, I kind of know the feeling. I never thought, well, I'm going to be involved some kind of way. And he was, he's a kid in Ontario with a single mother. They moved around a lot, didn't have a lot of money, but seemed like a great kid and had a great family with his uncles and grandparents and aunts, whatever. And then he and Christian, uh, Christian Cage, are childhood friends and seriously i mean not even teenage like wrestling buddies but childhood what they look like they were eight years old or whatever and they decide they're going to be a tag team and and it, he was making the point through this program decide i'm going to be a wrestler and i meet a, a buddy and i just we decide we're going to be a tag team and they actually do it you know that was uh, amazing they had footage of edge in the crowd at in toronto at skydome for wrestlemania six where, you know, they, his family had scraped together to get him a ticket. And then he entered the contest writing an essay on why he should be picked to train at, at Ron Hutchinson and Sweet Daddy Seeky's wrestling school. And Hutchinson still had the letter, which was cool. And then, the, you know, they had tape of his first match, which was an outlaw mud show, just so they could get experience. And I thought it was a great point, a great, you know, uh, detail that edge actually went to a tv talk show there in ontario that bret hart was a guest on just so he could try to ask him a question which you know what should i do how do i make it and uh, what you know brett's been asked that question a million times and what kind of advice do you really give on the air that was something that kept him going did you did you hear what his name was on local radio when he was doing the the college radio bit edge did you <laughs> Yes, indeed. It's Adam Jericho. Adam Jericho on the radio, ladies and gentlemen. So Christian is wrestling as Christian Cage and Edge is Sexton Hardcastle. And Carl DeMarco sees him. Carl DeMarco was not only was at one time Bret Hart's personal agent, but also was the head of the WWE Canada office. I think in, was it Beyond the Mat? I was in it, and I can't even remember. I tried not to be, but that's where we were watching the monitor with Christian and Edge's tryout match. Both guys did a great job, but I'm telling JR, look at the, look at this guy, and look at the, he's got it, and he's natural, and he, he took the bump, and I loved Edge as a heel. But JR said, Shh, be quiet, we got him for 300 bucks a week each Canadian. So don't, don't, don't talk about how good they are, because DeMarco might hear you. Well, at, at first, before DeMarco had seen him and encouraged him, and then they did the death tours and all the stuff, and then they got the tryout match. 
And as I said, when I first saw him, that's what I feel real green. But that's kind of how I envisioned him at the start is a high level bleach blonde wrestling heel with a with the, you know the a little Rick Rudishness thrown in because of that you know lean body and good looking guy. When they say okay, Edge is coming, and here comes Edge on TV, and Edge says he has trouble working out who edge was who is edge supposed to be so did the company and i remember this also and that's what i couldn't believe well i could believe it at the time but here you've got a guy whether sexton Ardcastle was a great name or not you've got this tall guy in great shape with a fantastic physique and young and already fairly well along in his work and you can't figure out he's a tortured soul. That was the description. Guess who was behind that description? Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I know it's going to be hard. I'm not sure, bro. At that time period, that was the thing. He thought in buzzwords. He thought in just shallow one word or one sentence descriptions. He's a tortured soul. He's filled with rage. And that's what he would. So then there's poor Adam Copeland out there now trying to be edge. Who's a tortured soul full of rage. And they're doing videos where he's in the coat and he's walking around the alley. And he didn't know what the fuck to do. And, they, and nobody was going to tell him and good. And you couldn't, I couldn't go up and say, Hey, why don't you just do what you fucking been doing and just do it better and more of it. Is that what got you here? Because I didn't know what fucking creative meant by a tortured soul filled with rage either as applied to a wrestling match. And then, well, go, go ahead. I was just going to knock poor Jose Estrada out. Go ahead. Right. But I think the topper was a deaf mute. Yes, that I hadn't thought of that in ages. Oh, that was awful. But anyway, so then his debut on TV in the first time he ever hurt somebody in wrestling, he does the flip over the top rope and knocks Jose Estrada colder than a banker's heart. Yeah. On TV and he gets counted out. Yeah. Not only that, but having, boy, they had to come out and strap him to a board. Yes, because it was a neck, you know, injury. Did what you saw when he flipped over the top rope, his leg landed on... Uh, right on the top of Jose's head, and it knocked him, you know, fucking screwy. And I, you know, but anyway, then they glossed over my favorite part of his evolution, the brood. I love that gimmick. The vampires were hot. First Blood was hot on TV. The fucking novels, they all three looked good. They looked young and... The, the the music, they were cool. The kids were starting to like it. The whole fucking, you know, the, the, the Freebird three-man team, wild-ass rednecks drinking Jack Daniels. They were, you know, fucking cool-looking vampires drinking blood. But they glossed over that fairly quickly. And then the tag team with Edge and Christian, where they became themselves, and this is where... They start, well, this is where we learn to be entertainers. Well, it was silly, but it was the silly era. 
I think their their matches probably did more to get them over than the the silliness. But again, when you go back and look at these retrospectives, I said it on last week's program that Mick Foley unfortunately has to bear the burden of having encouraged all the garbage wrestlers because they were so shallow and superficial, they couldn't see through what made him special. All they got was the falling off things and hitting with blunt instruments. They didn't understand the the vocal ability, the verbal ability, the the intelligence, the the unique charisma and likability as a person that he had and the psychology that he put into things he did and the the whole package, they just saw the mayhem and wanted to copy that. Well, then they get into the ladder matches and then the tables, ladders, and chairs matches. And I've, I've, I like Edge. I like Christian. You know, I have nothing against them. I think Edge would have gotten over as a main event star anyway without the ladders and chairs and tables. I think it would have been easier and quicker had they had anybody booking him to do that or booking anybody to do that in those days instead of doing all these stunt shows, which is where or what caused us to end up where we are. They shouldn't have been allowed to do these matches. The office should have cracked down. Vince should have cracked down because it... I mean, not and not only ladder matches and table ladder chair, and then three team ladder matches, and the pressure to top themselves time and time again that they admitted to. Said, well, there's pressure to top it since we got to top ourselves. Well, what that led to was not only edges, which we'll get to premature retirement and bad neck and years of pain and misery. Jeff Hardy and Matt Hardy ain't moving like they were when they were spry youngsters. Christian seems to have mostly been spared. I remember one of those ladders uh, with uh, John, Joey Mercury and Johnny Knight, John Morrison. Think, didn't they cave Johnny Nitro's face in and knock his teeth out? And whatever substance abuse problems was led to from these. I'm not knocking Edge, and I love this show, the whole ladder match, TLC match, to show the guys that he was tough. They didn't think Edge was tough until he took all those bumps and kept coming. Well, they should have, because he was one of the boys already. And for fuck's sake, how childish can we be? But I just, I don't think that, Edge and Christian, I'm happy for them because they were a tag team that achieved their real boyhood dreams, not the fake one that Vince gave Michaels, but the real legitimate boyhood dream they had. I just, the tables, ladders, and chairs, they let go, the company let go too far. And as a result, now not only is it a staple of every outlaw indie show in the world where somebody's willing to risk their life for no reward whatsoever, but it's, fucked up the mainstream wrestling business as well because that's all you see now stunts and stipulations and multiple man bullshit so this is their cross to bear like it mix with the uh 
<clears throat> the imitator's like the bank-addicted drug robber. But then Edge becomes a single. Well, a first Christian turned on Edge. Edge becomes a single. But then he teamed up with Hulk Hogan. Do you remember Edge and Hulk Hogan winning the tag team title? I didn't even remember this ever happened. Uh, I have a, yeah, I had a faint recollection of it. It was, yeah, during Hogan's stint there where he, huh, I forget if it was before he beat Triple H for that, uh, for the WWF title that quick switch or if it was before the the whole mr america thing well regardless it was it meant a big deal it was a big deal to edge it was his childhood hero so he got to do that but and i was not aware that he was edge was having trouble with his neck and the headaches and the arm trouble and everything as early as as he was but then by 2003 he had that first surgery a plate and screws in his neck. And again, I don't even blame the guys like this who have real talent, who aren't just garbage wrestlers that do stunts, but who have real talent and can be top guys. I don't feel as bad for them doing this stuff to get over when they clearly have the talent and they should be in the spot anyway. I blame more the office for making it a necessity or allowing it to happen. And he was depressed over the surgery, and he, it was a very honest and sad, you know, retelling of the story. But <clears throat> there's no reason that that guy, with the look and the talent that he had, should have had to do all that horse shit that nobody else in the wrestling business had ever done before or was ever willing to do or was ever allowed to do. It happened when the Marks took over the business in the office. And that led to allowing these guys to go too far. And they didn't even have competition. There was no WCW. TNA was not competition. They were just, they were kayfabing themselves, as Vince used to say. So anyway, Edge becomes a, a, a better heel then he was a babyface after he switches and gets the big return in Toronto and he turns and wins money in the bank and blah, 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 which is what I saw in 1997. Yes, he's a, he's a good babyface and he can do that, but he was a more natural heel. And that's what was really going to get him over to the point where that eventually he would become a babyface because he was established and he was a top guy and the people liked him. And then, the, you know, they went into, you know, the, the Edge and Cena matches. And, you know, we're basically, and we'll get into this a little bit on Rivals. We're going to start chewing our food twice. But Edge wins the, the title the first time, gets the belt, and loses it back to Cena three weeks later. And he's like, what the fuck? And that's bad for him because, again, it even, it plagued Tommy Rich back in the day when he only got the thing for four days. But that was, he was hoping, Edge was hoping a run was coming and then he loses it right back so Cena can go work with Triple H. So that pissed him off and made him want to prove something. And he gets together with Mick Foley. And again, they both want to prove something, which they prove it with tacks and flaming tables that again encourage, has encouraged so many imitators 
And so many people without either one of these guys' appeal or talent. And after that, his body was broken. And he, you know, they tell the story. They showed all those bump after bump after bump. And he gets hit with a chair to the back before WrestleMania of 2011. And his arms just go numb from a chair to the back. And then he goes ahead and has the WrestleMania match and finds out that his neck is fucked up again and he's got to retire. And that was, you know, I remember the retirement speech on raw was emotional. And that's where you really feel bad for the guy because he had to walk away while he was on top doing what he always wanted to do. And that's just, you know, bullshit under any circumstances, but Again, I mean, you know, I say more. He was willing to do it, and that's great, but he shouldn't have been allowed to that much for that long, to that extent. Yeah, and knowing the context of that uh, that first kind of, I don't know, I'll call it a stinger after he got hit with a chair by Brodus Clay, knowing that that was uh, transpiring on a live SmackDown, oof, it's, uh, I mean, very scary seems almost improbable that he got cleared for WrestleMania 27. He passed the same day, I guess, whatever strength test uh, that they gave him. <laughs> I think somebody said, hey, squeeze my hand. Okay, I feel you. Yeah. All right, you're good. <laughs> it was a little looser back in the... But, you know, here's another thing. People say, well, there was absolutely no medical care for the wrestlers back in the territory days. And what would happen? There was no EMT on site. What would happen if someone was paralyzed? I never saw anybody paralyzed. I never saw anybody get a stinger. Cause most time people didn't get dropped on their head. I, I saw from the time I was a fan through the first 15 years I was actually in the wrestling business. I think I saw four, maybe five people. So a period of 25 years, I saw five people break an arm or a leg. I was obviously it happened more often, but that's what I was present to see. Uh, I've seen people get concussions and knocked out. Yes, that's going to happen. But, you know, spinal surgeries and stingers and things going numb and what that. That's a modern thing, folks. But while he was retired, that's when he got together with Beth Phoenix. They had worked together on the roster, but they'd never really been together. And so he had time to not only get together with Beth, they seem so happy and perfect for each other. And he's got, he's a father now. He's got the two girls. He did the TV show that got a recurring role on and, and got, he lives in Asheville North Carolina, and it's obviously a beautiful place. He's near uh, Dax and Cash from FTR. They let, Asheville is probably the place to go now in North Carolina because the mountains are so beautiful, and Charlotte's gotten to be a big city, so you don't want to go there anymore. It was pretty, but it's just it's like it's like you're in fucking the north now. But Asheville's beautiful. He's got a great place. And then the other bad thing toward the end of the program, he was they were about to move his mother from Ontario down to Asheville with him, and she got sick and ended up cancer and passing away before she could come down. So that was obviously, you know, disheartening. But 
He starts thinking about one more match and Beth, and I'll tell you what, she can put her foot down. She demanded to hear an okay from the best doctor in the world, and she worked with him herself to see that he could do it. And they were doing Actually, I think if AEW wanted a goddamn women's division, they ought to bring Beth Phoenix in to captain that ship. She looked better working with Edge than any of the women do on their program. And he's just in, the, in his warehouse in Asheville with his ring set up. Uh, but he got cleared. He made the comeback 2020 Rumble after nine years. He won 2021, went to WrestleMania. Judgment Day and the botch of that was completely glossed over with about a 10-second B-roll, but we got a happy ending out of this piece. Yeah, altogether a pretty good biography. Though, you know, I think it was notable in what was kind of uh, airbrushed out of you know, <laughs> first Sexton Hart Castle. Also, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it didn't go back to the WCW archives and show the uh, the matches he had there as a jobber. I think they probably they probably don't want to call people's attention to that. And I like and and also I was going to make a point that I thought what is Lita on the outs, but then when I watched uh, Rivals, she actually had comments in that program, but. She was with Edge for a good, good period of time there on that run, and as they said in Rivals, was instrumental to the package they were presenting, but they just showed her in random footage and didn't even mention her name in the biography program. Right. Maybe the producer is pissed off at her or whatever of that show. Yeah. I don't know. But and I, there were, I mean, I haven't followed that era WWE that closely. Did they glaringly omit anything else? About Edge that we should well, have known? Uh, other than his first marriage to Val <laughs> sister. And then, the uh, yeah. you know, all the kerfuffle uh, that happened therein. With him and Matt and Leah. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Yeah, well, they, no sense hashing up old, old right, wounds. Right. So, you know, I think you know why it didn't see the light of day. But then again. There is precedent with, say, the Macho Man biography, talking about how he, you know, had a whole surveillance thing going with the Gorgeous George's house. Yeah, yeah, that that standalone one biography still remains as the the creepiest and kind of most backhanded complimentary episodes on Savage of all the ones they've done. Everybody else, even when they've fucked up and their own families left them somehow they figured out a way to redeem everybody at the end and put them all back together in a happy kumbaya circle but savage's his heat stuck a little bit but yeah but that i i like the show and and again and and for the people who just want to pick at me to say oh you didn't like the tables ladders and no i didn't like the tables ladders and chairs stuff not because it was edge but because it was anybody because it's just it opened up a can of worms and it hurt a lot of people. And I blame the company more in this instance because if they couldn't figure out to not push Edge to the top without him flinging himself through a bunch of furniture, then they should have all been fired for malpractice and misfeasance or whatever. It's not like you couldn't see that he was he was a top guy and he had he had tons more ups. Think about this. If they hadn't made him go through all that horse shit 
to get to the level he wanted to be with the all the stunt show matches, they would have had nine more years of a top guy that right now is just at the at the age where he would probably be thinking about retiring for the first time. They would have had access to a guy that good and that over and that talented on their roster for that many more years. But no, but anyway. So nevertheless, that was the biography episode, and I, I love me some Edge. He's a nice guy. I'd always have, so I'm not knocking him, but that was the only part of the of his career that I could have done without. And so this past weekend, we had the biography on Edge, and then also on A&E, their WWE Rivals program uh, put a spotlight on a particular year in Edge's career where he matched up with a, a young up-and-comer named Cena. Hey, now, wait a minute. A young up-and-comer? What do you mean by that? No. um, You know, and again, I usually like this program. When Rivals was Michaels and Bret Hart, I'm like, oh, yeah, and, and there was there was an edge to that, or the long-running rivalry with Foley and Undertaker or whatever. <laughs> This program, as much as I like the Edge biography, I didn't like the Cena Edge rivals because they were they were rivals on camera. They fit the gist of the the uh, the subject of the program, but they spent the entire program about their violent rivalry, telling us how much they loved each other. It was such effusive patting on the back and praising and. We, I love this guy, and I said, I love you to him. And he said, I love you to me. <laughs> there was, ah. <laughs> go, go ahead, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I mean, just from the, just from the jump, when the, the first shot you see is uh, John Cena dressed to the nines, <laughs> sip, <laughs> sipping some sort of brown bourbon. beverage. Bourbon Out whiskey. of a crystal glass. I'm like, is this Rivals or is it a Doer's profile from like 1982? <laughs> he looked like an investment banker yeah. testifying against Bernie Madoff. Or, you know, I, and he was so soft-spoken, John, now. He's, he's reserved. But I think part of it was when they have the biography and then the same night have a person that was in the, the subject of the biography also in Rivals. Sometimes you're seeing the same talking heads, you're seeing kind of the same footage or whatever. Maybe they could have spread out nights or whatever, but uh, we got the Cena Edge rivalry was what nine months in 2006. They had umpteen matches, but it wasn't their guy or their matches. I've always said I love John Cena, he was a great kid, like Edge. But again, this program was more about. In the old days, the fans would have looked at this like, well, yeah, they really yanked our chain. They never had a crossword between them. At least with Undertaker and Mankind, you could be, you know, drawn into the goddamn violence and chaos of it. But with this, they overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly hugged and kissed each other figuratively on this program. I get tired of everybody talking about changing their character, evolving their character. The horse has left the barn, whatever. But I'm not opposed to talking about inside stuff in this day and age. Like I said, it's too late to stop that now. But Or even talking about how we cooperated 
you know, I've talked about stories angle. Well, we did this with the rock and roll express or whatever, but I never have ever said my cation. Fuck. You evolve because you get older and you get wrinkles and you start doing shit differently because you pick more up. That's how you evolve. If you're real, it's, 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 I said this to somebody recently, and it's applicable here. You know, Edge, there was a quote in this show, we both grew as actors play roles. They play characters, roles, plural, characters, plural. Every movie, every TV show, every Broadway play, every dinner theater, whatever the case, whatever the level, you're taking on a role that you play for the length of that plays run or and then you move on to something else a wrestler is not playing a character or characters he needs to be that person and that's what they lose track of is that they don't need to evolve characters they need to evolve themselves i'm not saying do the same thing dress the same way every time but when you're thinking about yourself as an actor playing a part being a character or the character is you, or you are able to become the character. That's 24 7. That's 365. You don't need to do promos at the dinner table with the family, but you have chosen to become someone, and you need to be that person. And I know guys change gimmicks if you have a Dr. Isaac Yankum. But, you know, that wasn't him to begin with, and it was something that was forced upon him. The guys in the territory days had to take care of their own selves and their own business and didn't wait around for somebody to give them a gimmick. They came up with one that they felt they could do and was them. And unless they were drastically mistaken, like Sugar Bear Harris, he didn't go to Oxford University and learn how to speak like Lord Greystoke. He was Kamala. You got a bad gimmick, change the gimmick. Improve the gimmick, but that becomes you. You become that. But anyway, they 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 did the program. They traded the wins. And that's what I came away with. The praise from these mortal enemies for each other was heartwarming. In the end, Cena won the title and hugged his father. And they were done. And Edge went on to do all the things that Edge did in the biography that we just saw. Wow. There are at least a, a couple of revealing pieces there in like the, the TLC match, uh, the Unforgiven rematch in Boston where Cena regained the title. Uh, I had no idea that uh, Edge passed out from yeah. the job. From... Well, that, that was good. Actually, you know, I can see how it would have happened because John's got thick forearms and he's not got like basketball players arms and he had a ladder on it. Edge was in the snoring. Edge was, he, he thought it was his alarm going off and he was going to miss his flight. When you get choked out, I can tell you from experience and you first come back around, you're not sure what the fuck is going on, where you're at. It takes a second times a little longer, depending on what puts you out to begin with. Edge passed out. He when he he woke up hearing himself snoring and thinking it was his, like I said, his his alarm <laughs> clock, and he saw the Air Canada sign on the wall and thought he was late for the airport. So 
Rival. Hey, I'll tell you what. Lou Kippelman, have you ever been choked out unconscious by anybody without asking them to do it first? Uh, no. Well, in that case, if somebody does it to you, then you might need to sue somebody. And if you need to sue somebody, ladies and gentlemen, I know exactly who to call. Call Stephen P. Boy, howdy, ladies and gentlemen. If we ever had to do a podcast without playing that funky music, I just don't think I'd air it. But I'll tell you what right now, folks, what we will air is some grievances because there are more people that the legendary Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. More people that the legendary Stephen P. New is representing. He is represented and defended the downtrodden of you. Those folks who have been wrongfully terminated. I'm talking about your employment, not your life. If somebody wrongfully murdered you, you might need to call Stephen P. New a little quicker. Anyway, if you've been wrongfully terminated, if you've been poisoned or your health has been damaged, if you've been injured due to someone else's negligence, inebriation, or complete incompetence, We know that Stephen P. New is on your side. So many of you have contacted him from the cult of Cornette through newlawoffice.com or 888-692-8084. But now, we just revealed this a couple of weeks ago, he is helping the prisoners, the inmates that are living in overcrowded and deplorable conditions in the jails in West Virginia as soon as as the state of West Virginia was put on notice that Stephen P. New was looking into the contaminated food and the lack of plumbing and water and inadequate medical care and rampant gang attacks in the West Virginia penal system, it's getting to where you can't go anywhere anymore. You can't even go to jail and feel safe, for heaven's sake. You, you can't even, if you can't go to jail and have a good time, what's this world coming to? But by cracky, Stephen P. New is cracking down on old Governor Jim Justice, if that is indeed his real name. What a gimmick. And he has issued, the governor has, a state of emergency to help fill empty shifts at all the jails that are facing these staffing shortages, which they blame for this inhumane Dickensian-like conditions. And that's just an example. It doesn't matter whether you're an honest person or a crook. Stephen P. New will take up for you if somebody's screwing you around. And he'll stand there and he'll say, Your Honor, this crook deserves every bit as much respect as that law-abiding grandfather over there. And he'll get it, too. Folks, Stephen P. New, no matter which side of the fence you're on, he'll be your safety net. 888-692-8084, theinevitablenewlawoffice.com. All righty, while we'll never question Stephen P. New's legal aptitude, we will question anything and everything about professional wrestling, courtesy of the questions asked by the cult of Cornette, I guess. Lou, do we have questions today on this Slapdash program? 
Our first question, emailed to us at cornydrivethrou at gmail.com, comes from Zach in Cincinnati. And where we're visiting a, a favorite topic, a, a wounded WWE superstar. Now that Triple H is in charge of booking, should Cody be worried about his spot? Cody had one of the most intriguing WWE storylines in years before his injury. Does he have to worry about the whole smashing the throne in AEW thing coming back to haunt him? Or will Triple H do what's best for business? Oh, God. I, I think with what we've seen that Triple H is willing to, you know, uh, uh, repair bridges with people and bring people back. And he's told somebody, I don't care what went on before. We'll start fresh. I don't think a throne-breaking entrance is going to be a big deal. Triple H knows they need top babyfaces. And that's the whole reason why Cody got this spot to begin with. And the story, for once, Vince was hitting home run because the story is perfect and he's the perfect guy to tell it because it's real and it fits. He's the son of the guy that almost won the title in the garden and may have been in an alternate universe if he didn't go with the NWA and uh, Vince didn't go with Hulk Hogan could have been the WWF champion. He was one of the top two or three box office attractions in anybody's business at that point. And Cody wants to come and fulfill that destiny and he's got the picture and the story. And we've talked about Cody being a perfect sports entertainer for that atmosphere and that audience. So I think Triple H is going to see that. And he's going to go, well, okay, we signed this guy for a, I assume, long-term contract. He got hurt, unfortunately, but we had started something. It seemed to be working. It seemed to be getting over. Why don't we continue to do that? If there was a plethora of talent out there that could draw money, that could perform at a high level, that could be available and you know, take Cody's spot or take the top two or three spots. That might be one thing, but there ain't that. And there's not going to be in the next six months or less or however long it's going to take, uh, you know, for Cody to get back. So I think unless, unless there's something we don't know about the two of their interactions, um, I think they're going to be fine. I, I think they'll pick Cody up right where it left off. Mm. Yeah. But that's just me. You figure, I don't know, <laughs> if you were Triple H and you saw the, that sort of weird stagecraft of having a throne at that initial AEW event. Yeah, but okay, but Triple H is a guy that got a Jeep and a fucking fake cannon and drove over to the scope to confront WCW. So he knows what's going on. Very good. Yeah, you know, and we'll see. I yeah, I agree with you. Business is business. I don't think he's too perturbed about that particular silly piece of business. So, oh wait, wait, we have some breaking news here. As everyone knows, when news breaks, we take it back and get a refund. And this is. On the ITRWrestling.com site, of course, that's our friends Kenny McIntosh and his cohorts over across the pond at Inside the Ropes, but ITRWrestling.com is reporting that Fightful 
Select is reporting that <laughs> prior to dynamite taking place in Cleveland, Ohio tonight, that's Cleveland, Ohio, the mistake on the lake, for those of you so inclined, there's going to be a mandatory talent meeting in AEW. And Tony Khan, the AEW president, will be present at that meeting. Details are unknown, but recent weeks' reports of disquiet in the AEW locker room have increased dramatically, and things have appeared to come to a head when CM Punk reportedly went off script to make a series of digs at Hangnail Adam Page. I'm sorry, they say Hangman. They didn't get his name right. And then further reports, everybody's grumpy. There's sides being taken. There's the cosplay trampoline cowboys, and there's the serious wrestlers, and never the twain shall meet. And uh, a lot of people have been said to be close to the breaking point. So now apparently, Tony Khan has called a meeting. It's mandatory. All the talent before Cleveland, that's what they're saying here, is supposed to be there, and he's going to address... Apparently, some of the rumors surrounding the unrest in the company, personal issues, the cases of these things it says here being leaked out of the locker room to the wider public. It's hard. It's hard to figure out where the leak is when you've got guys shooting on each other on live national television. <laughs> and, and we couldn't have any idea of, that this was happening, except we watched it on TV. <laughs> on your show, Tony, with your fucking merry band of misfits that you don't have the ability to control because it's all a goddamn clusterfuck. It's a Chinese fire drill over there because you need a leader, and this is what we've been talking about. You can hire plenty of wrestlers. Every once in a while, you find one that actually draws you some money. But you have to have experienced people running the operation in the positions at the top. You can't make this guy's wife the head of merchandise. You can't make this other guy the head of talent relations when the only talent he's ever related to was laying flat on his back with somebody pinning him because he's a job guy. You can't fucking rely on 18 wrestlers to book their own programs and angles and interviews and come up with their own gimmicks because they're all going to be at counter purposes to everyone else. And there's going to be severe enmity in the locker room when you have what people are worth and you sign people to the contracts you think you should be paying them rather than the ones you should be paying them. And then when other people find out that they're doing three times the rating or five times the business and getting 20% of the money, they get pissed. So now all those things are coming back to haunt the new kid on the block. If only someone could have foreseen this all happening, say three years ago, four years ago even, somewhere around the time NDAs were being signed, and if mm. only somebody could have said, just don't fucking give the boys too much pull, just give them enough pull that the fans are happy. Then you're the the wrestler-friendly promoter, not the evil billionaire in Stamford. Give them a voice. Make sure the company has the final say. A few months later, I turn on the internet machine. He's got five executive vice presidents with legitimate titles and pull. 
So anyway, so that's Ooh. what's being reported there. I just wanted to jump in with that breaking news. Um, do we have another question from the fans of the of the uh, drive through here today on the program? Indeed, we do. And our next email sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com comes from Cousin David from Hamilton, Ontario. Cousin David, perhaps... Wait a minute, a is it your cousin? I don't. I think he was like the least popular hillbilly in mid-80s WWF. Oh, that Cousin David. Okay, yeah. there, was, there was Cousin Junior, there was Cousin Lanny or whatever. No, I, Lanny I, was Cousin Junior. I think Cousin David was was part of the family only for Canadian content rules. Ah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Cousin, cousin David, the Ontario hillbilly. Go, what does David right. want to know? So David starts off his question, the first few words in all caps. And I'm going to try really hard not to say it like Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, don't shout. What is the deal with the spear being a finishing move? Is it because of football backgrounds? It's kind of lame when a lot of wrestlers have that as their finisher. Why not do a hockey body check instead? <laughs> and he says, joking. Where can I find more unique finishers? What do you think are the top three best finishers? And his personal insight, me, myself, and I don't like being put in a figure four or a chicken wing hold. <laughs> Most of all, pile-driven. Good moves, though. P.S. Don't try this at home. Well, to, to the, first of all, well, let's save the, the best finishers, but the spear, it's like everything else. If the guy doing it does it and it looks really good, then it's great. And if it doesn't, if it's not, it, now, when, when multiple wrestlers do the same finish, then yes, it does have an element of making that move seem more routine. When the only one doing the DDT was Jake, when the only one doing the figure four was Flair, whatever the case, it made it more special. But also then you set yourself up. If you're one of the guys doing a finish that somebody else is doing, you're setting yourself up to be compared to other people. Now, Roman Reigns is pretty bulletproof. He's the biggest regular star on the biggest television show on the biggest promotion. He can do the fucking spear. Edge. Previously in that company, as we just saw from multiple programs on A&E, was the spear master in his time there. But I don't know at that point if anybody else was allowed to do the spear in the WWE because Edge was doing it. They generally protect people's moves, obviously not forever. Just because you were doing something in 2009 doesn't mean a guy can't be doing it in 2022. What are the best finishes? I God, I don't know too much anymore because there hardly are any. Because nobody ever really wins with one except after, you know, in the case of the WWE, there's going to be some kind of interference or belt shot or whatever, and then the finish. In the case of AEW, they're going to do 18 million finishes, and then just when they've decided they're, they're done and they've done all the shit they plan to do, they're going to just, Whatever the finish is, it, it might be the 17th most impressive move of the match. Uh, and it's usually flat. You know, there are finishes that should always be protected. Nobody can ever change my mind about the pile driver. It's the easiest, safest move to do 
that when done properly looks like it would fucking hospitalize you. So why not make that one the one that's most protected that nobody gets up from? It's too late, but we could have done it. For years in a lot of territories, it was illegal. The Tennessee Athletic Commission, the promoters in Tennessee back in the 50s, actually got the legitimate athletic commission to declare the pile driver was an illegal hold and it was banned so that that way they could tell the truth whenever they said it was a banned hold and you're disqualified if you use it. You might be fined and the guy's carried out. And that's why people jumped to their feet, women screamed, and kids cried when a guy in the Tennessee Territory got pile-drived because they thought that's it for him. So it's not what the greatest finishes are. It's whether they're protected and not only whether they look great and whether they're exciting and whether they look devastating, but whether they're protected and not done over and over by everybody. It used to be a rule of thumb that anytime a top guy in a territory was using a certain finish, nobody else could use it. And that should be the case today. But there are so many other promotions that you can watch, especially the really diehard fans that if you watch seven or eight different promotions, you're going to see guys doing the same moves in all of them. And that, you know, basically is, is makes them more mundane, but the only finish that I can think of that's really been protected well is that one wing fairy of Harpo's and it looks like shit and looks like it would hurt you if you had a bad neck or bad back, but he's been smart enough that he doesn't let anybody kick out of that thing. Even though there are 50 more, uh, more devastating moves in wrestling than that, that everybody routinely just shrugs off. So that's, that's my thought. All right, our next question, sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com, uh, comes from a, a fellow we don't hear from uh, enough, Charlie in Starkville, Mississippi. Charlie, hope your dad's doing okay, by the way. Hi, Jim. Chris Jericho recently... Hi, Charlie. Uh, hello, big boy. Hi, Jim. Chris Jericho recently talked about why he didn't change his entrance music from Judas when he turned heel. Jericho said Tony didn't want it. He wanted to keep the original song. What are your thoughts on Tony Khan wanting to keep Judas as Jericho's entrance music? I did see this comment, and it and he where I saw it, it was fleshed out as Chris saying, I did want to take it away from him because I was going to be a heel, but Tony didn't want me to do it. My response is Chris didn't try hard then. Because you can't tell me that Tony Khan who who listens to all these other off-the-wall, half-cocked, half-baked creative suggestions from everybody in the world and does most of them, apparently. I don't see a lot of editing going on. If Chris Jericho tells Tony Khan, who's never been in this goddamn business before he started his own three years ago, and Jericho's got 25 years' experience, and that apparently means a lot to Tony, even if it doesn't mean a lot to the other wrestlers in the locker room when people have experience. If Jericho said, no, it's my song, it's my gimmick, it's my character, however the phrase is, I'm going to be a heel, they like to sing along, it's going to make them happy, I want to take it away from them to be a heel, no, we're not going to play it, we're going to play something else. Tony would say, no, goddamn you, Chris Jericho. 
if you don't play that song that the people like that they'll cheer for, uh, even though you're a heel, just because you're trying to make my business better, I'm going to find you or suspend you or fire you and you'll never work here in, in this town again. No. He didn't try very hard. He may have made a token attempt and told you, oh, no, let's keep it. And maybe Chris led him that way with the questioning to begin with. But, but no, there was no serious contemplation or request or demand made. No, we've got to, we've got to do this differently if I'm going to be a heel, obviously, or it would have been done differently. So no, I don't, I don't buy that implausible story. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, it makes me wonder if, I don't think Jericho was too, you know, I don't think yeah. he was too, too <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think Jericho, he was, I don't think he, he was wasn't too, on a mission. He wasn't too eager to, to, uh, to drop the song. He was in, not in, on in a the, crusade in, to do that. In no. like the first two years when he was a heel. <laughs> so I don't think he had a, you know. A coming, uh, coming to Jesus or coming to Judas moment, I guess. Oh, that's see what you did there. Yes. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Somehow I'm, I'm not quite buying it. I, I will, I'll pass on that. But, but you know, again, it comes down to the guys, the guys having input in their gimmicks and their matches and their promos and everything else has been what they've wanted in the WWE for so long that they haven't been able to attain. And in AEW, that was the promise that they were getting. That's why a lot of them went there. But now, unfortunately, you find out the flip side of that coin is that there's a reason why all the guy. I mean, the, the ideas that even... Guys in the WWE that you would think were experienced and were veterans in the 90s were pitching to me, just, you know, and I'm not going to mention any names, but it was stuff that you would protect them by never mentioning it to Vince because then he'd think that the guys that he thought were halfway sane were crazy. And or, you know, the ideas that were obviously see-through, like, yeah, I'd like to be Vince McMahon's illegitimate child. Oh, that means you're going to get some TV time. Uh, well, that's a happy byproduct. I hadn't really been thinking of that. The, it, it, you have to have the right guys that have input, and only a few of them at the top at a high level that are the more experienced guys and the money ball players. And in in the Carolinas, it was besides Dusty, you know, Flair had input and certain at certain times, various members of the horsemen or somebody that would be on top of the fucking food chain. And they would be, you know, obviously, it, that's the way that George Scott booked the Carolinas for years, was he got the Johnny Valentines and the Blackjack Mulligans and guys who had done angles with each other in 50 million different territories and knew how to draw money with themselves and each other and let them do it. But you can't just let guys who have wanted creative input all this time, but have never had it, or even worse, the fucking Cucamonga kids and the creative things that they do with their stupid, silly video YouTube show and their, you know, just indie mindset. 
you don't want to give them free reign with no governor, no fucking leash on them, because then you get a show that not only is schizophrenic, but in a lot of spots, stupid. And that's why you have to have a happy medium of everything. Experienced guys on... When Punk is there, at least his segments come off with with professionalism. And some other guys that, that have the uh, the knowledge and the detail-oriented mind to make it good instead of just going out there to do cool shit with their friends. But that's, you know, that Tony has, he's had the money to put the, the thing on the air and get the thing established. He had the contacts to get the television time. He's had the ability to bring all these people together, but he's never had anybody to run this fucking place. And that continues to be his problem and his issue. So for uh, for all of those various reasons, you can't have just everybody doing everything they want to do, and it's all a community effort. Somebody's got to be the boss. Somebody's got to help the boss, and somebody's just got to be the stooge that does what they're told. And there needs to be more of them than there are of the previous two. Did I answer that question or five others? Well, I think that was a pretty holistic answer <laughs> that branched out. So. <laughs> but it just, it's so, it's Jesus. Imagine if you were going to shoot a movie and okay, let Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky, right? Yeah. And he starred in Rocky. He didn't direct Rocky because he was nobody back then, but he had input because he was fucking Rocky. And he wrote Rocky. And the director is going to listen to the guy that wrote the movie and is starring in the movie. But how much input did fucking Rocky's sparring partner in one scene have? How much input did the goddamn the side of beef hanging in the freezer have? Yeah, we might listen to Mickey because it's Burgess Meredith. He's been around forever, but he's probably going to be pretty quiet. And uh, yo, Adrian, we did it. I'm sure she was probably easy to work with. Didn't demand much. But everybody else in the movie pretty much just fucking went and sat in the corner when they were told to. Because you can't have everybody pitching in on the fucking thing. Well, I mean, Talia Shire comes from the Coppola family, so. Well, I, I, I don't care she... if she can cope or not cope. She'll learn to get along with it. Right. And perhaps Buckus the Bulldog had a few choice <laughs> uh, contributions. Yeah, you know, well. I'll tell you what, they had to get that bulldog uh, milk bones every day at three o'clock or he went on strike. Yeah, yeah. Ah, but, uh... But there's that. that but indeed, there is that. <laughs> Do we have time for one more question? I think we got time for another question, then we'll get some songs. Okay. Our final question today, sent to CordyDriveThru at gmail.com, comes from a fellow named Buff from down under wait a minute is he also the stuff uh i don't know did do they call it the stuff in australia i don't think they call it the shit down there or the shite or something else so buff's on the shit uh allegedly, allegedly. Uh, but i think he's getting better i saw him dressed up as mr rogers uh recently but anyway uh, this buff asks, Dear Jim, 
As a larger individual, I fondly recall the more rotund wrestlers of times gone by, where everyone wasn't a chiseled Adonis. Adorable Adrian is a great example. I was shocked, however, when years later through the internet, I found out how grossly exaggerated some wrestlers' weights were. For example, King Kong Bundy, billed at 458 pounds, was actually around 330. What? Wait, what? Uh, the devil, you say. Uh, <clears throat> okay, hold on. At what stage in his life is that notated? Uh, boy. Good All right, well, we'll finish the question. Let me say, interested in your experience on weight in wrestling, how and who decided it, and any other anecdotes. Well, okay, first, and I didn't mean to just shit all over his question to start, but, I mean, later in life, Bundy may have got down to 330, but no. I promise you, I've been around guys, I know they're legitimate weights from being in the office and dealing with commissions, I know they're gimmick weights from booking, and Bundy was, I mean, maybe when he was a teenager, he was 330, but he was much mm. heavier than that when he was in his run in the WWF with Hulk Hogan, etc. I don't know a 458. I can't say that. Uh, yeah, but, perhaps a more salient example would be Vader, I, I'm thinking. Well, and here's the thing. A lot of people, I have tried to tell them what Vader weighed at various points, and they call bullshit on me. And I'm like, what the fuck? I knew because I was one of the, I was his manager and in the office and hearing them bitch about how much he weighed. And at his heaviest during his WWF days, he topped 400 by about 10 or 12 pounds. And at his lightest in the WWF days, he was probably around 350. And there was a range there. And Obviously, yes, a lot of weights in the wrestling business have been exaggerated. Haystacks Calhoun didn't weigh 601 pounds. Probably, legitimately, he's upper fours and maybe five, depending on whether it was toward the end of his career or not. But 601 sounded good. So he was 601 pounds for 20 fucking years. Like, there was no variation. But that was it. Um, with Andre, his height was exaggerated more than his weight ever was, but, but at some point he actually did not only meet, but exceed his exaggerated weight in real life. So it depended on the part of his life as well. All guys in the territory days, they'd, you know, well, not, not everybody, but a lot of guys, they'd put a couple of inches on them or they'd put 20 or 30 pounds on them. You know, to get Ricky Morton in the business, they had to say he was 195 pounds when he started out. He was probably 165. But if they'd have said that, people would have laughed at him because they didn't have child wrestling in those days. But at the same time, I've seen people, you know, say, oh, bullshit. So-and-so didn't weigh that much. Well, yeah, yeah, they did. If I say they did, because <laughs> I'm not fucking advertising <laughs> them, trying to sell tickets, I'm telling you what the truth was. Yokozuna, when he first, when he was Kokina, he was in the, I think, high 300s. And when he first, they used to talk about this, when he first went to the WWF in, what, 92, he was around high, the high fours and they made him 500 pounds. And then by the time I was working with him first in 93, they said he was around 500 and something, maybe 600 pounds legitimately. 
But the it finally got to the point where at Survivor Series 96, that was in Madison Square Garden, everybody knows the New York State Athletic Commission is the strictest one or one of the strictest ones and one of the most red tape ones in the country. And that's what instigated them giving Yoko time off and sending him to the Duke weight loss clinic and everything they tried to do before they eventually let him go, period, because he weighed 802 pounds by an official commission weigh-in, and they wouldn't fucking license him anymore. And that was what that was. So a lot of people have said, oh, fuck, Yokozuna never weighed 800 pounds. Well, at that particular point in time, he did. People change weights, but there was, with Mark Henry and Big Show, when they would send them to Louisville to OVW to lose weight, to get in shape after an injury or whatever the case, we we didn't have a scale that would weigh them. So when we had to weigh them once a week, we had to take them to the fucking junkyard. And, and that was a, it was a fucking deal. We laughed about it, you know, and everybody took it in good humor. And then finally... Um, I think that was the time that Mark got under 400 pounds. They sent us a scale from the office. They bought us and sent us one that went up to 400 pounds so that we didn't have to take the fucking talent to the junkyard. Mm. But that was, a, th- you know, so the weights are all over the place. And some people's weights are deceptive. So you should always tend to be skeptical of advertised weights and build weights. But at the same time, when the a lot of even very closely observant fans just, uh, well, there's no way he could weigh more than this and that. Well, they're just pulling those numbers out of their ass too. So unless you've actually been around a weigh-in or commission paperwork or just had personal conversations with the guy about their weight, you don't really know, do you? You certainly don't, but I can... For example, you're, yeah, I'm sure you're a svelte individual. Lou, I've heard oh. you don't weigh a, an ounce over 375, but some people might take you for four and a quarter. Yeah, they, well, yeah, they might be overcharged on that case, <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a fairly, uh, a fairly rotund individual myself, but I can say with some certainty uh, legendary manager and wrestler George Tutun Harris was <laughs> was never four thousand pounds. He never actually weighed two tons. Although he did tell me one time he had a hernia that fucking looked like a goddamn cantaloupe falling out of a bushel basket, and that uh, that just that visual just did things to me. Oh, Lord. But anyway, but there you go. So there's the answer to uh, who was that question? Uh, that was our, our pal Buff from Down Under. From Buff. I thought it was William J. Cobb of Macon, Georgia. <laughs> no. You got that one, didn't you? <sighs> or did you? Who oh, is okay. William J. Was... Cobb of Macon, Georgia in the world of professional wrestling? William J. Cobb in Macon, Georgia. I thought of Lee J. Cobb, the actor. <laughs> so... I got totally screwed up there. Happy Humphrey. Oh, yes. Happy Humphrey himself. The oh, same individual Har- that Harley Race got in the business as the driver for and would wash him afterwards with a garden hose after his matches. Uh, he was in the Guinness Book of World Records at the time. This was the late 50s as the heaviest uh, human being on on the planet at that point at 800 and some pounds. And... 
became a pro wrestler. And I honestly kind of believe that that was pretty much around his weight because the Guinness people are not like wrestling promoters. They had to do a little bit of verification. And, uh, and then the McGuire twins who were the heaviest twins on record on the earth, not just in wrestling were listed in the Guinness book at their height. Well, I guess their height of their weight at 747 and 767, which seeing those guys in person, I could kind of believe it was, it was fucking insane just to watch them walk into a room. I've never seen anybody that was walking erect on their feet, standing straight up and their stomach still drug the fucking floor. It was, it was, it was, yeah. But you never know. People come in all shapes and sizes. Like you and me, right? I'm I'm skinny now in my old age. I'm taking care of myself. And you're portly, Lou. If it was you and me walking down the sidewalk, we'd look like the number 10 walking down the street. But people yes. come in all shapes and sizes. Yep. And so do shows. Mm. Podcasts come in all shapes and sizes. And I think... We needed to stay in better shape for this one, but at least we've we've sized it out. Are you ready for some music? We get a few songs in here to cheer things up a little bit at the end of the program, like we always do. Are you ready to play the songs there, Lou? Ah, uh, I I would be, but yeah. but uh, unfortunately uh, the the jukebox is empty this week. You got no songs. <sighs> Brian didn't no send song. the songs. No, he's, well, you know, he's been. Well, I, I know, I know he's in that boxcar and he's got to be halfway through Montana by now. I really think he should have spent more money and actually flown first class, but, but he didn't say, so we got no songs to end the drive through ladies and gentlemen, all that Lou Kippelman and I can do is extend our apologies over this shocking breach of quality control in that we got no music. Should we sing something, Lou? <laughs> well, we got if, no music. We we should sing something. If, if there was a Patreon that people could give to to have us not sing, that that might fill up rather quickly. Well, you know that actually that is the case. I quit singing a long time ago because of my throat. You know when people threatened to cut it, but right. I just felt well. Wait, maybe we can make some. Some music. No, hold on here, man. Uh oh, wait a minute. I'm just trying to think my. Well, I think. Uh, how about my... uh, shaving the haircut two bits? Oh, oh, wait. Ah, an old time classic. Sorry, lady. So I guess we're going to have to just close this thing up because we got no music. Uh, I, I guess so, and I can... Holy mackerel. I, well, so. I, I apologize again, folks, but we'll be back with the experience um, coming up in a few days. Brian is still out in the hinterlands. Hopefully he'll get to where he's going and take care of that situation. Hopefully he took the shovel and the pick with him as well and a couple of sticks of dynamite because, you know, those hidden bunkers are hard to break into, but I guess it's it's just left up to you, Lou, to close us up as normal. You betcha. So, uh, any updates on Cornette's collectibles? Oh, fuck no. Ah! (laughs) No, no, no. Ah! Actually, I should have mentioned that at the top of the program. I was so 
enamored of you being my special guest host today, I did not mention that at jimcornett.com, of course, we've talked about it here lately on the programs, the new action figure Armageddon, the slow boat from China has almost docked. And on September 17th, my birthday, and Lou, you can you can identify with this. I've come up with the perfect way for everybody to get what they want. In that, on my birthday, September 17th, the new action figures go on sale. Two brand new variants, my pink and red Monday Night Raw debut suit from 1993 where I was hugged by Bobby the Brain Heenan and a brand new Christmas variant with colors switched from the previous ones. They both come complete with tennis racket, microphone, and brand new Jim Cornette glasses and the Christmas variant comes with a Santa hat on the figure and I can write the Bah Humbug message or the Merry Christmas message, whichever you prefer. And those go on sale Saturday, September 17th at noon Eastern, which is my birthday. Not noon, but 17th. And if you want to know what to buy me for Christmas or what to buy me for my birthday, just buy one of these action figures. And that way, if you buy me a Christmas present, you get a Christmas action figure. If you buy me a birthday present, you get the pink and red variant. You get something out of it. So we both prosper. Is that the greatest marketing arrangement in the history of sales, Lou? It is a veritable win-win. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Anyway, and you're going to be able to go to jimcornett.com on on September 1st and see pictures of these variants on the homepage. And then, of course, they go on sale Saturday, September 17th at noon Eastern time. And hurry, because we have less than 1,500 of each. And, you know, the bloody variant, 1,200 of those lasted 36 hours in April. So anything could happen. But that's what's going on at Cornette's Collectibles. Very good. And to uh, briefly uh, talk about the the fine shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Network this week, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. This week, his guest is the popular and infernal Kevin Sullivan. So that ought to be uh that ought to be wicked pissa, as Mr. Sullivan might say. The devil himself. The devil. And check out his most recent episode with uh historic uh, archivist and collector Tom Burke. That was a fun conversation too. On Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry, uh the boys discuss the series finale of Better Call Saul. And they review a match in a movie. The match being Nobuhiko Takata. Nobu- oh, easy for me to say. Nobuhiko Takata. It's Nobuhiko Takata! Yes. Back when the Japanese guys didn't wrestle blow-up dolls and children. Yes. Uh, versus Hiroshi Hase from New Japan's Top of the Super Juniors Tournament of February 1988. And the movie review is uh, the 1985 film Vision Quest, which has to do with amateur wrestling, but mainly we watched it for Linda Fiorentino and and those, you know, and those great Madonna songs. On the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, Mike Sepervivi and Roman Gomez go over the television from February of 1983. The legendary road to Greensboro is paved with uh, some actions coming forward from Sandy Scott and the NWA. 
with regards to Slaughter and Kurnodal and Steamboat and Youngblood. Also, Dory Funk Jr., Dick Slater, and Paul Jones. Oh, that's a trio to draw to. Oh! They, they pick on poor young Mike Rotundo. So, hear all the action on the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast. And, of course, the 605 Super Podcast. Don't you dare even try to do that today. You think the mothership. It, you think I'm going to scuff up these pipes, brother? <laughs> Not a chance. But uh, as ever, things are in the hopper. Things are, the great Brian Last is in the lab mixing and and measuring. No, he's not. He was. He's doing that overnights in that in the corner of the box car. Okay. Well, you know, you got having a he's mobile. He's not office. doing it right now. I know because he's left us without music. <sighs> Indeed, he has. But uh, stay tuned, though. More upcoming uh, content from Six Hundred Five Super Podcast, and also uh, keep your ears peeled for the wrestling news. And that's all I got to say about that. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on here a sec. That's going to be painful. Why would you want to peel your ears right before you listen to something? Fuck, you need that skin. Anyway, all right. right I well, know. well, and I, I didn't peel. It was molting. It was already on the way out. All right. Well, at, le- at least it's just flaking off rather yeah. than you peeling it with a, with a knife or a potato peeler or something. Say goodnight there, Lou. Sure. And a reminder that... Jim Cornette's drive through as always, is sponsored by the Law Office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. And uh, I'll take your advice, Jim. Good night, everybody. Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fuck and Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey, Ryan, the Young Bucks, the Rednecks and Dumb Fucks, and them Dork Order Bum Fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the Boogeyman, the Boogeyman, the Boogeyman. Corny's drive-through. Corny's drive-through. Tony's drive through Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. To the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you. Steven, Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive through. Tony's drive through. Tony's drive through.
And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.